Good evening, everyone, and welcome to the podcast. Tonight, we're going to be talking about subplots and secondary characters. And this has come up a couple of times. You know, how many subplots do you need? How many subplots, you know, for a novel versus a novella versus a short story? Um, And for the record, your short story never needs a subplot. Probably shouldn't have one. Not only does it not need it, it's inadvisable. Because it's not going to be a short story for very long if you actually follow through. And we had we had a question during the last podcast that we can actually address like super quick, I think, that is tangential to this discussion, um, which was somebody asked, um, in regard to this 911 discussion we had, they started thinking about in relation to writing, and we'll tie this in as we talk, um, about how do you decide how many side stories you should have and how they should get concluded. And if you don't wrap them all up, how do you decide which ones get closed and which ones don't? So as we talk about subplots, we'll talk about the difference between subplots and side stories and what the difference between a subplot, a side story, and what they're doing in 911 is, because it, it is not quite the same thing. So we'll add that into our subplot, subplot discussion. In, in most writing classes, uh, they will tell you that a subplot and a side story are basically the same thing. I tend to treat the two ideas differently and separately, but this is a choice that you make for yourself. Um, for me, a side story is maybe a story I want to tell that does not impact my plot. A subplot must have impact on my characters or on my plot. Otherwise, it has no business being in my story and it's a sideline that I'm including for vanity. And sometimes you do side stories for pacing reasons, or you might do a side story just because it's interesting. Or if you're doing a professional work, you might do a side story um, to build interest in your next book and the next character arc. Or to pad your word count. Or to pad your word count if you're doing Kindle Unlimited. Um, Or if you're just under word count. Like if you said... Or if or if if you're contracted for sixty seventy five k and you're pulling in at sixty four, and you got to add something, adding a little sideline is a good way to handle that nine or ten k that you're missing. Yeah. So there's reasons in professional work why you might do side stories that are a little different than what you might the reasons you might do them in fan fiction. Um, but a little side story is there's nothing wrong with it. It's just you don't want to do so many side stories that people can't tell your real. Uh, your actual plot and subplots from your little side stories. And you also don't want your side stories to be more interesting than your main plot. That is never, ever the goal. People are like, yeah, this story was really interesting, but I was really a lot more interested in these little, this, these little characters you introduced over here, you know, for a few words. And you're like, oh my God, but they, they weren't, there was nothing about them. And then you're going, wow, people are really just really jazzed about these characters that I mentioned for 200 words, eight chapters ago. That's really disheartening. People can't keep ask, stop asking about them. And then you're like, have I made my side story more interesting than my main story? And that happens sometimes. You don't do it. Um, but there are there are reasons why you might put a little side story in. Um, I, I agree with Kira. I do treat subplots as and plot basically the same. I don't I don't distinguish them. Um, I don't I don't treat side stories and subplots as as being the same thing. I think that they're different. And while if I'm trying to pare down my word count, I'm going to hit my vanity scenes first. Um, I'm going to remove secondary characters who don't further my GMC, goals, motivation, and conflict, or my plot. 
first. I'm going to throw out um, anything that is, uh, I, I consider a sideline or a side story that's not impacting me or my work first. Because sometimes, like, especially in professional works, um, if you're, if you're not writing to spec and you haven't been given a particular word count and say you come in at around a hundred K the publisher says, you know what? I really like this, but I'd like it better if it was 85. Now, if they're willing to cut you a check, you're going to find some ways to trim this down pretty damn quick. That's <laughs> right. <laughs> so it's always good to know. It's always good for you to know when you're being, when you're writing something to amuse yourself rather than to further your plot. Because that's where you'll make cuts if you need to make cuts. And you look at each scene individually and say, okay, does this scene serve my characterization? Does it serve my plot? And if it doesn't, why is it here? Is it vanity? Is it a bigger part of a sideline story that I can remove outright? Was it in my original plot document, but no longer serves a purpose? Because sometimes that happens to me, especially because I zero draft. Sometimes I'll include things and then I'll go back through it and I'll have taken out large parts of it already, but ended up with a scene in my works that I really no longer need because it was in my zero draft. I've done that. Now, if we look at an example of, um, a, 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 and I have to, Y'all have to forgive me in advance, okay? Because um, I haven't read Lord of the Rings since I was, well, since before I was an adult. And I, there were parts of it I skimmed because I found the Two Towers exceptionally boring. Um, but Lord of the Rings, so I, I some of it is, is, is re recollection of what I'm going to speak to. Some of it is recollection of the book. Some of it is more movie and some of it is probably there's some fandom creep in here but lord of the rings is rife with subplots and it needs to be it is a massive arc it cannot be a single narrative plot about just frodo and his journey to mordor it wouldn't it wouldn't sustain itself the same way it needs the subplots of um Aragorn's journey and Merry and Pippin's journey and Gandalf's journey. It needs all of those. And those are all subplots and they all tie up and tie together and feed back into the main plot. And they tie um, and they make the, the main story richer with those subplots. So absolutely. The bigger the story is, the more subplots you need. There are also some side stories. If I recall in Lord of the Rings. I think the whole thing about uh, Samwise and his um, little romance with a side story, it wasn't really wrapped up um, other than, um, God, what was her name? Rosie. Rosie, yes. I mean, he gets married, and but it's not really explored as a subplot. That is really more of a side story. Rosie Cotton, thank you, Lady Holder. Um, I always thought it was more about his characterization. Um, it speaks to the fact that he and Frodo had a very similar journey, although Frodo carried the one ring. Um, and it's like, it, it's like they're almost a mirror of each other that they, they went on this journey together. And the only real difference between their journeys is that Frodo carried the ring. And even Sam says, I, I, I can't carry the ring, but I can carry you. Um, and so that when they get back to the Shire, Frodo is never the same. And neither is Sam, but Sam moves on and gets married and has children, and Frodo does not. Yeah. 
And I, I agree that that speaks to um, characterization more than anything. But a little side story can speak to characterization, but I wouldn't have called what was happening with Rosie a subplot. It wasn't, no. de it wasn't developed enough. Um, so, and I think that there was even some stuff, some stuff about the Ents, as I recall, that was a little bit more side story ish that never quite gets fully, um, and it kind of like, maybe you wonder like some of the stuff about the Ents, um, there's information dropped historically in the, in the stories. And I think people were so curious about some of the things and about some of the background about the Eagles and about the Ents and about that. That's probably one of the reasons why there's so much supplemental materials. Um, but did any of that stuff need to be explored for the main narrative arc? No. And that's probably why it wasn't. But like I said, there may be more than explored than I recall because it's, it's been a hot minute since I, read the Lord of the Rings and I really have no intention of ever rereading it. Well, you know, when you're reading Lord of the Rings, it's really obvious he got paid by the word. Really obvious. Um, but he was also still a master storyteller. He just was really padding his word count. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. That's an, it's an unfortunate thing when a master storyteller is padding their word count because their craft is not as good when they're putting words in that they, but you know, I don't regret the man making some money. I mean, no, I don't begrudge anybody. Uh, but you know, I mean, if, if you ask me if if I've included moments of like what I would consider vanity in my professional works, the answer is yes. Um, is it in my fan fiction? <laughs> Hell yes. Hell yes, because that's the point. Okay, because there came a point in my writing career where I was like, you know what, I want to have some fun, so I went and had some fun, and. It can be said that I often write really larger than life characters in what was that term somebody used? Bombastic uh, plots. And um, I really embrace that kind of thing, like, like Tony Stark and Rodney McKay. I really embrace those kinds of characters uh, because that's, I want to entertain myself and make myself happy. And that, and that's where that's where fan fiction lives for me. It's my happy mm -hmm. place. So I'm not gonna draw out the angst and make myself miserable. Nine one one. I'm looking at you. For fuck's sake! I cried today reading something. What'd you cry today reading? But then, but then there was an unfortunate chirping, so I had to close it. Oh no! Oh yeah. Well, you need to send it to me because I'll get through the chirping better than you would. That won't bother me as much. I might be able to find it again. I don't know. There was chirping. I mean, I agree with you. Grown men shouldn't chirp. But that said, I can mentally substitute a word like a boss. Chirp is not a fucking dialogue tag, y'all. Anyways, <clears throat> chirp. It has thoughts on this subject. Yeah, actual chirping. Fucking grammarly. Okay, anyways. <clears throat> like a bird. Oh, I'm fine. He chirped. No. That, no, no, baby. No. Quit chirping. Yeah. Grammarly will do that to you. It will ask you to substitute chirp. No. They mean like a sound. It's a dialogue tag. Grammarly does it all the time. I'm like, ignore, 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 ignore. But apparently there are authors who don't ignore Grammarly when they suggest that you use chirp instead of said or exclaimed or shouted. I don't know. I have had Grammarly make that suggestion to me. And I'm like, no, Grammarly. Uh-uh. I'm not saying that somebody chirped. You're crackers. I don't know what Lady Holder means, and I'm afraid to ask. 
We use chirps more. I really have no idea. I tried pro routing aid. I didn't like it at all. Oh, well, I don't use Scrivener. So that could be part of it. That is awful. There are some things we don't need to know about in your family dynamics. Oh, no. <laughs> I feel like we've hit a point of oversharing here. <laughs> Who knew this would be the moment? <laughs> oh, dear. Oh, dear. Okay. Um, but you didn't, you did hit on a really interesting point about, uh, weaving subplots and plots together um oh i wouldn't go in a dirty mind i just don't want anybody putting food in my mouth i wouldn't let my husband do it trying to be sexy much less when i'm driving i don't like anybody touching my food after it gets in my cart or on my plate that's my food now <laughs> and no one else needs to be touching it it's no longer your food my issues. <laughs> Just have issues. I don't even like my husband to touch my food once it's in the cart. I'll get mad when he's trying to help me check out. I'm like, no. Uh, yes, Ellie, that, that's one of the reasons. There are other reasons, but that's the, that's one of them. Um, I don't actually... I don't agree with the fetishization of food. <laughs> Just at all. In any single way. I'm, I'm, I'm not on board food kinks. Because um, that's my food. <laughs> I don't want anybody touching it or putting it on a penis. Or <laughs> I don't believe in like human plates. I can't read it either. Like There was a, this really apparently sexy fic in the Hannibal fandom. Where Hannibal used Will as a platter. For sushi. But I couldn't, I, I couldn't read it. You might have issues. But I mean, I get it in general. I mean, it's like whenever I read about something, like I, whenever I read about people doing body shots, I have to kind of like skim over it because I'm like, that's not sanitary. <laughs> <laughs> no, okay. I actually had some body shots. Which is funny because, I mean, you'd think I wouldn't have that reaction because I can write and read sex just fine. So I don't know why body shots kind of, but it's just like, stop it. <laughs> I should probably make myself get over it and write a body shot into a story or something. I probably just read her body shot done really badly in a story at some point. And it created a mental block for me. Could be. Could be. Um, where was so I? You were saying, you said there's a good point about weaving subplots oh. and then you got distracted about food. Food. Yeah. Sorry. Okay. Weaving. I think that um, you will know when you've reached your saturation point on subplots, when it's difficult to weave the various subplots into your main plot, when your narrative starts to feel crowded. It, yeah. It shouldn't feel like work. It shouldn't feel like you're, I mean, it's, it's, it's a skill and you have to build that skill. Um, but you don't, it, it shouldn't feel like you're laboring to try to, keep track of the moving parts and really for me i some people like to build subplots around secondary characters see that's just awful let's go, let's go back to the subplots otherwise we're gonna have whole subplots about food um that's probably the kind of body shots that got me off of body shots um i'd agree but but um i don't like building subplots around secondary characters you said i i don't because that's how you're you're that that's how my narrative gets bloated i 
if I'm going to involve a secondary character in a subplot or a, it's going to be related to my main character in some fashion or another. Um, because otherwise I'm going to go off on a tangent. It does get harder to balance when you have subplots that are completely focused. Well, actually, I don't even know the, I don't know how you could have a subplot that's completely focused around a secondary character because a subplot should feed back into your main plot at some point, which means it should have something to do with your main character. Um, right. Which if your main character doesn't have anything to do with that subplot, in order for your reader to know about it would mean that your secondary character has a point of view, which I almost never do. Right. Not never, but almost never. So there's a lot of dynamics. There's a lot of things that have to be going, a lot of moving parts to giving a secondary character a subplot. That starts to feel more like a side story. Which and the problem is it can get distracting is you're giving your character a secondary character an interesting side story, and then it's like do you split that off as a separate narrative arc, like a different story in the universe? Um, which you can do in a big series work. It allows you to do an episode about a sub secondary character. Uh, but if you're doing like a novel or a series of novels, it's a little bit harder to sustain splitting off. Um, a little bit harder to sustain. Um, off a bunch of side stories because it dilutes your narrative yeah and once you start diluting your narrative you're going to lose the main thrust of your theme and your work will start to look chaotic it's it's kind of like i i feel like if you're going to do something like this you you need to write in a um well, you don't need to do it, number one. But if you're going to have this, if, if you want to tell a story with a lot of moving parts and a lot of POVs, then your real, the the best choice you can make craft-wise is to do something episodic, like I did with Sentinels of Atlantis, which allowed me to tell um, side stories and tell them in different points of view to focus on other characters, but it didn't dilute the narrative because I was doing it in episodes like you would on a TV show, which was the whole point. Um, and so, but each one of my little stories or each little episode in the Sentinels of Atlantis built into the main plot from different perspectives and different points of view all the way through to the end. And that took some work. And I had to replot and rewrite because I lost it. Um, and I also look back on it and I see things I missed. And no, I'm not going to point them out to you. <laughs> it never failed. The minute I point out my own, the flaws in my own writing on a podcast, like within a few weeks, I'll get an email from somebody pointing out those flaws in my writing. So I'll be like, well, thanks for listening to the podcast. I really appreciate you. <laughs> I was like, okay. You know, whatever, dude. Um, did that with uh, one night I talked about a little bit about the uh, some of the what I saw some of the narrative issues and emergence on a podcast. Uh, it may have even been after the podcast. I don't remember, but I was talking about that. It, the, it contextually, it was about that I see the problems in my own writing. I'm not oblivious to them, but when it comes to fan fiction, sometimes I just decide to let it go. That sometimes that the effort it takes to fixing a certain thing by the time you see it is maybe not worth the effort. Um, and then if it doesn't, you know, sometimes if it doesn't destroy the story, it's maybe it's not worth pulling it apart to fix a specific thing or whatever. Anyway, so somebody then a few weeks later, I get this email pointing out some of the things that I had brought up in that discussion. And I was like, uh-huh. How very insightful of you. <laughs> um, 
But also another reason I don't do it is because sometimes if you point out the problems with something, it can diminish somebody's enjoyment of it. So what's the point? Um, right. If they aren't if they aren't seeing it, you know why do it? Oh. Um, but when it comes to um, when it comes to the specifically the thing about the thing about nine one one, the the things with all the different characters that the like the victims we'll cut the victims in in nine one one or any procedural if, if not if it may not be a victim it could be the victim of a crime or whatever the vehicle of the procedural is if it's a courtroom drama it's the cases they're working or whatever it those those are basically the beats of the of the show and those are not they may be part of the plot of the story or they may just be the vehicle by which they're telling that week's episode so they could be plot device or they could be plot and the degree to which they need to be wrapped up depends upon how they're being presented so like in 911 typically the rescues are not actually the plot itself it's about it's the beats of the episode and there's usually sort of an, a, a narrative arc and the only stories that get follow-up are the ones that are feeding into the character's narrative arc so when you like, when I was when I was watching it and I came upon the episode with the guy with the restaurant and Bobby went back and found the point of arson I thought to myself that's gonna come back to bite you in the ass they set it up Mm-hmm. Yeah. They pointed out to you that that, that, that was going to come back to bite Bobby in the ass. Because why that case? Because Bobby just, usually Bobby's job, he's very emphatic from the, from the second or third episode. Our job ends at the door um, of the hospital. Our job ends here. And Bobby is not a fire investigator. He's a fireman. So there's different people do fire investigation. So, you know, that was a different thing, right? So when they when they make a little twist, right? It's feeding into a character's narrative arc. You're like, know that that's going to come up later. Um, sort of like in the second episode, I think. I think it's the second episode, the second episode of Nine One One, where the guy who who falls from the roller coaster, that became a that got a lot more follow up because it was part of Buck's narrative arc for a couple of episodes. Normally. It's, but see, there's a difference between just a normal rescue and a rescue that's going to deeply impact one of the characters. So a typical rescue, there's going to be no follow-up. So the difference in, like, if you're doing something like that is how do you decide which it is? Well, it matters in terms of how it's impacting your characters and your plot. If it's just um, extracting a toaster from some guy's dick, does Ken Johnson need a follow-up? No, not personally. But it does speak to their planning. The whole thing with 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 Freddie and the restaurant um, and Freddie's actions later and what happens with that. Um, that even back then, in that episode, they were already planning for something really epically wrong to happen later on in the future with this kid in that situation. Well, that episode was only like two or three episodes couple episodes before the when when freddie comes back because that's that that was a that was a begins episode it just felt like it was it was it was a flashback because it was bobby begins it was a bobby begins episode it just felt it felt like it was further back in the narrative i binge watched the show this is what happens yeah when you binge but it was like it was it was a a several episode arc but yeah okay but it was different so because there was follow-up on that case it was like 
you knew something was feeding into the the character's narrative. So you knew that character was going to come back in some fashion, that that plot arc was not done. What was it telling you about Bobby? That Because this was a Bobby Begins. I think it was Bobby Begins Again or something like that. I have to go check the name of the episode. I think so. Yeah. It was when they were explaining. But I, but I did binge watch like two and a half seasons in three days. Yeah, so when it was, it was they were explaining how Bobby got to LA, and it was the first case he worked with Athena. It's where he first met Athena. So, uh, first significant case. I think he and Athena first actually met with the rooster episode. <laughs> she handed he handed her that that rooster. He handed her a cock. Yeah, he handed her a cock. That's right. Um, so if you're introducing a side story, like a, it's not even a side story, but if you're introducing, like, so you, let's say your characters go out on a call to to do a rescue do you need to follow up on that rescue well it depends and that's the answer it depends is this rescue going to be a problem for your character later if so then you have made this potentially either part of your character's gmc it's not quite maybe not quite a subplot or you may be introducing a subplot and the matter of which it is depends upon does this impact your overall plot um and, and how are you going to pull it? Are, is this something that's going to happen? Is it only feeding into your character's internal conflict? Then it's not a subplot. If there's these events are going to get drawn out and pulled, then it's a subplot and you're going to have to follow it through. Um, it's not, I don't think it's really hard to determine which it is because it matters. It, it, you know, if you're only following up on it because it's entertaining, it's not a subplot or feeding into GMC. In which case you're just doing it for reader service or because you, or it's because it's vanity. It amuses you. And that's fine, but that has its place. Right. And if you're not careful, you can dilute your narrative and make your narrative really difficult to follow. That's a judgment call. The other side of that is, is that, well, there's the red herring. And if you do that too often, or you insert something into your narrative um, to throw your reader off, if you do it repeatedly, your reader is going to get agitated when they read your work and they might not even know why. And they'll stop reading you because you're agitating because you make them anxious or nervous or upset. And even if they never figure out why they will associate your work with that negative feeling. Yeah. You can do it once kind of carefully and judiciously in a story, like as part of a plot twist where you're kind of using a careful red herring to kind of misdirect a little bit so you can do a plot twist later. But you have to be careful how you do it. Um, if you're doing it constantly in your narrative, where everything, nothing is what it seems, it well, for starters, it's going to start to feel like there's an unreliable narrator. It's like, even if there's not, like, why is everything a misdirect? How come the characters never seem to actually be able to understand what's going on? But you also don't want to feel like you're constantly bait and switching your readers. It's the same way you don't want to use a cliffhanger repeatedly, too. And whoever that asshole was who said to end every chapter in a cliffhanger. It's exhausting. I mean, honestly, when I read a story, because I typically read 95% of my reading is completed works. And when I read a story, I actually don't like to read in the all, all, um, the entire work view. I actually don't like reading in the entire work view. And the reason is because if my, um, my, page refreshes, which it does, pages reload for random reasons that I've never been able to figure out, I often will lose my place. And I hate that. And so I don't like being, you know, on a 140,000 word story and all of a sudden I'm back at the top. I rarely read in 
in the entire work view. I know a lot of people do. I just don't. Although that bit me in the ass when I had my power out for several days, including no internet and no data. And I had like 15 stories queued up with the first chapter. Oh, that's terrible. (laughs) I read all 15 first chapters and then sat there pouting. (laughs) That's so bad. I'm so sorry. (laughs) (laughs) But um, anyway, so, but it just, even though I've got the next chapter to read, it drives me nuts when every time I'm advancing to the next chapter, I'm on a cliffhanger. And even if I were in entire work view, it would annoy me just to be scrolling down that if I'm constantly getting that cliffhanger vibe, it's just, I find it frustrating and irksome. I don't find it. um, I don't know what the author thinks they're getting out of that. It was driving me crazy. So in one story so much, even though I was enjoying the story, I actually had to nope out of it because the cliffhangers were just so ridiculous. It's just bad craft. And, but someone said some, some, long time ago to do that to entice your reader to turn the page and they do it because they heard it it's just like that crap where you write what you know it's the worst piece of crap advice craft advice i ever got followed closely by end every chapter was a cliffhanger <laughs> i think the worst piece of advice i've heard recently is that you should write your chapter lengths in potato chip size piece because that that face with a dead fish that is the modern reader's attention span is long enough for it to eat a potato chip. Hot take. If you can't read 5,000 words in a chapter from me, I don't want you reading my words. You're not smart enough to read my words. <laughs> apparently there's this thing where apparently 2,000 word chapters, 500 to 1,000 words in a chapter. Are you fucking serious? Oh, yeah, that was the advice. 500 to 1,000 words. 2,000 was considered big in this art, in this advice article. And I was just Unleash like, your demons would be 115 chapters. I just, I actually find super short chapters annoying. So I don't know. I don't know what the, mar- who, who the market is for that. I, when I, when I write, when an author is putting out 500 to 1,000 word chapters, I, I'm irritated. So, you know. My average chapter lately has been running between five and 7,000 words. I actually, um, I think it was, uh, it was here for you. Here for you ran 2,500 to 3,000 words, which is the shortest average chapter length I've ever written. Um, but the rhythm of the story I felt called for it. It was, it was sort of a, it was sort of a different writing experiment for me all the way around. Mm-hmm. Um, Would you say it was comfortable? In, in that specific narrative arc style, which was, you know, they do a brief call out and then there's some sort of personal interaction, start a new chapter, they have a 911 call, they have then some interactions, next chapter. In that particular narrative style, yes, it was comfortable. I think in any other narrative style where I wasn't doing that episodic sort of trying to mirror the way the episode rhythm is, no, I don't think it would be comfortable. I don't typically plot it that way. It worked for that particular story, but, you know, I've done experimental things. I've got some stuff that has 10,000 word parts more. I wouldn't call them chapters. Um, actually, I don't call them chapters, but. When I do that, it's usually like a three-act structure. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, basically. And I like that structure a lot, actually. Um, I, did I was that thinking for, about yeah. using it in April. Yeah, I did that for Dark Road. It's a three-act structure. Um, I think. Sometimes I forget what I've done. But, um. Now, some stories, it depends on the story and what I'm trying to do and what the narrative rhythm is. So, 
but my comfort zone is novels at five to seven thousand word chapters. That's my comfort zone. That's where I. That's where I plot. That's where I'm happy. Um, some writers do feel five thousand words is too much per chapter. I get it that they don't have to write five thousand words, but um, five thousand words also is the gold standard. So, um, yeah, I would say forty five hundred to five to, um, to five thousand is the standard for a modern fiction novel ish. I mean, yeah. I, I'm really comfortable between five and 7,000. Um, I mean, I've seen fanfic writers put out 30,000 words and claim it's a chapter and they'll, then they'll say that 30, that they just write whatever the chapter needs to be quote unquote. Um, but I also had someone tell me once that they really enjoyed um, unleash your demons. It was a great chapter. It's obvious that some readers don't know what a chapter is. <laughs> Oh, but um, Margaret, Margaret says she writes between two and two point four k and three and a half k chapters. I don't think that's weird. I mean, I I would find three thousand words actually to be a comfortable chapter to read because I I read quite a few writers. So basically, you're saying three thousand words is your comfort zone. Um, I I read quite a few writers who um write in the three thousand word zone, and I think that's comfortable to read. And if you're comfortable writing there. You know, go for it. What I don't find comfortable to read is five hundred to thousand words. It's it feels it feels like it's part of a scene, and sometimes it is. Sometimes you'll get a scene broken up over three chapters, and it feels ridiculous. Just feels it just feels silly. It's not complete to me because I do believe that you know that scenes have a beginning and middle and an end, and so does a chapter. And sometimes, and how am I supposed to write a beginning and middle and end if a scene is stretching over three chapters? That doesn't make any sense to me i mean some, sometimes the scene is really big and, and the chapter and the scene are the exact same thing but um i can't i can't even with, with with but people put out this advice um this is the same kind of advice but this is advice that i see going to writers that are writing on kindle direct you know trying to get people to you know turn the page more i feel like that that's what this advice is geared towards is getting people to turn the page more but i just i don't think it's good craft advice Oh, but Kaya, we all have written that crazy thing where we're like, well, that was a weird thing that I did. I think Kara's got a 50K episode out there with no chapters in it. <laughs> right. I admit throw, it. Right I'll there. just throw you right out there. But, yeah, I think that boils down to the fact that none of Sentinels of Atlantis had chapters. I wrote a novella at the front with no chapters. And then I wrote episodes. And then I got to the end and nothing else had chapters. You didn't chapter, so I mean that became your that became your style for the whole the whole series. Um, sometimes you do a different style and a different story. I mean, my um, I have some stories that are some stories that are told. In very, I have a bunch of stories that are told the very similar style, five thousand word novel length. That's most of, I would say most of my stuff fits into that space. But then I have some stuff that's different. That's maybe novel length, but it's told in ten thousand word parts or. Um, maybe even bigger um so you know sometimes and it's okay to be experimental it's okay even if your normal comfort zone is five thousand word novels it's okay to write a novella and try to write two thousand word chapters that's an okay thing to try and see if you're comfortable with it it's okay to try new things but i would never take up on you know pithy writing advice and think that that's that's something you need to aspire to Trying something new is one thing, but thinking you're trying to, you know, like dumping adverbs, um, yeah, because that advice is incomplete. You know, that whole don't use adverbs thing, that is really, that, that's pithy advice. It's incomplete. There's bad use of adverbs that you want to avoid, um, but 
you can't dump all adverb usage. That's just crazy cakes. Even Stephen King doesn't dump all adverbs. But he'll tell you to do it. Yeah. <laughs> His pithy little advice. So I I don't um I think you need to figure out what your narrative style is for your comfort level. And because and then after you're comfortable and you can do this consistently, then experiment with other types of things. But I didn't really experiment with narrative styles and POVs and um, until I had a really firm grasp of my craft and my comfort zone. So I would know when to retreat into what is comfortable for me to basically recover from a failed experiment because, and when also when you experiment, you have to be 110% prepared to fail and for it not to work and for you not to be discouraged or demoralized by this failure. But you can't, even if something does work, it doesn't mean it's always going to work for that, whatever. So like, uh, here for you, where I wrote the two to three thousand word chapters, more closer to three, but some one chapter I think was two. Um, that that style it worked for that particular structure that I did for that story, but my next nine one one story, the chapters averaged over five thousand words, just like my normal. It wasn't the same narrative style; it was a typical novel. So it's. I didn't try to 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 think it was some sort of thing that was going to happen every time I wrote in that fandom or, well, this is the way this is going to go in this fandom. Um, I knew it was an experiment specifically around a different type of storytelling that I was trying. And I didn't try to apply that to writing a traditional novel. I can't read whatever that is because it's behind a full, it's behind a paywall. I don't know what it means here. I assume so, but then someone upstream says I only use a full stop if there are multiple sentences. So I'm confused. Oh, when texting? Well, text speak speak is a really different sort of of beast. Um, There are people who speak in nothing but emojis. So, you know, I can't can't extrapolate to how that translates into... um, I always use punctuation in my text and full sentences. I I use commas and everything. <laughs> the only time I don't use commas is when I'm texting one-handed. Um, and sometimes I use quote marks depending on my mood. Yeah, I do two starlight. I use a semicolon. My sister, my my middle sister, she thinks it's very weird. Um, but anyway, so when it comes to when it comes to your um your style of your novel or novella. Um, I don't necessarily think you need to chapter a novella. Uh, it's kind of up to you. It depends upon, for starters, how long a novella is, because the range of a novella is about 17 to 40K um, ish. I actually think 40K is like right at the cutoff point. So I think if you're at 40K territory, you should be chaptering, but that's just, that's just my opinion. Um, so the, the, if you're at the underside of the novella, if you're like more at around 17 to 20K, do you need to chapter? No. If you're at 40K, yeah, maybe you should. But it, it, to some degree, sometimes chaptering is a matter of, of pacing. And if the lack of the lack of break, even just a visual break and ha- saying to the reader, okay, take a breath, the rhythm, we're, we're starting something new. 
that that affects your pace. Literally, just just saying chapter two can change the pacing. Um, and sometimes in a novella, what you actually want to do is break it into, like Kara mentioned earlier, like three act structure, like part one, part two, part three. Although in my case, sometimes when I'm doing a three act structure, it winds up in a four act structure because I have a problem sometimes with writing too much falling action. Don't judge me. <laughs> but you can also, if you're working with a bigger, like a bigger arc, you could do um, basically a five part structure. Yeah. Three, five, and seven. There's three, five, and seven um, act structures. Uh, but five can be very comfortable in a bigger novella. This true lady holder, if I write the following action at all, there have been times when my characters just climax and then that's it. <laughs> Sometimes the climax is the climax and the story's over. I've been known to Wally Coyote off a cliff. Yes, I have. <laughs> um, so there's, you know, Sometimes if you're somebody who doesn't, I mean, this, this is sort of weird to me typically, although I'll tell you, I'll come back to this and tell you guys a story because this happened, something that happened to me weird, weird recently. And I, I kind of went kind of like sort of shocked and startled to care <laughs> about it. But normally it's a very strange to me to write without chapters, but it, it's certainly, there are a lot of people who do and they chapter later. Um, and um, I wrote, I wrote my quantum bang. My quantum bang was a, 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 like, well, it was my third or fourth quantum bang, but the story I was planning to submit for my quantum bang, I kind of got sidetracked on something else. And it just kind of was like word vomit for like two weeks of word vomit. Yeah. And, um, yeah, two weeks of word vomit. And then all of a sudden I was like, oh, I think this is my quantum. I didn't even, I wasn't thinking this is my quantum bang. I was just like, I'm going to give myself a couple weeks to get this off of my chest. And then I was like, oh, I think this is my quantum bang. <laughs> And because um, it had sort of taken over my brain. So, and then all of a sudden I realized I had, didn't have any chapters. I had almost 90,000 words and I had no chapters. And that has never happened to me before. And I was like, oh my God, I have no chapters. And I went to Kira and I went, Kira, I wrote almost 90,000 words and there's no chapters. I and um, you got chapters. And so, what you I have chapters, guy. <laughs> <laughs> Exactly. So she said, you've got chapters, you've got chapters. So I sat down. I didn't look at the story. I made a list. I had took my scene list and I put drew a line through where the natural narrative breaks were. And then I went and did word counts to see how much, how many words are in those sections of where the natural rhythm breaks were for where I would chapter naturally. And with one exception. Well, one came up a little bit short. Yes, those were actual chapters. They were all between four and 6,000 words. One of them was 3,500, I think. And I just, I kind of added, made that, I kind of added some stuff to that when I went back and looked at that chapter. But, um, but Kira's response was, you've got chapters. And I was like, but there's no chapters. She's like, calm down, there's chapters. <laughs> but it's because I'm so used to writing in a chaptered style. Of course, I naturally wrote in a chaptered rhythm. Even I mean, if, if I went back through the search, which is the 50K part of Sentinels of Atlantis, it has chapters. They're, they're just not labeled. Right. There's no way it doesn't have chapters. Because that, that's how I've been writing since I was 12 years old. I mean, so I know they have chapters. There are chapters there. It's just not labeled. And sometimes you do. You just write and it just kind of, you think you're writing a one shot, but you still write in the rhythm that you normally write in. Which is, you know, beginning, middle, end, start the next thing. Beginning, middle, end, start the next thing. Even if 
you don't label it chapter one, two, three. So um, one of my chapters was a little sparse, but fixed it. Um, you've got your, or whatever your writing style is, whatever your comfort zone is, whether it's 3,000 word chapters or 5,000 word chapters, or if you're the person who really likes to tell your stories in 10,000 word pieces, 10,000 word pieces is a, that's a little bit more work because those are big pieces for somebody to um, consume. You have to be much more careful with your pacing uh, to do a 10,000 word piece. But somebody who's really masterful with uh, subplots and pacing can do, tell their stories in 10,000 word pieces. Um, I think that if you're going to do that, um, you do need to be concise and you need to have a really sharp narrative. Otherwise, you're going to bore your reader silly and, and yourself too. Um, sometimes when I read authors who claim that they're writing, they prefer, they write 10 to 12,000 word, you know, chapters. I'm actually, when I read their work, when I, when I'm reading your episodes, it's almost episodic or a, a series of short stories because it's the rhythm of their quote unquote chapters don't feel like chapters to me. They feel almost like complete little stories. And, oh my God, already? <laughs> Should we have a moment of silence so that you can go <laughs> I, I can go another minute or two. Okay. Um, <laughs> I I do think if you're going to to tell a story in chunks like that, that you might be better served to write in episodes versus a novel format. I think if you if you're churning it out that way, that maybe that's the story. That's the way your story wants to be told, or the way it should be told. Um, but you know, again, this this is something. This is a choice that you make for yourself where your comfort level is what kind of writing you want to do um and what best serves your story the more i mean it's telling your story in a series of episodes or a series of short stories or a series of novellas is more flexible inherently than uh, telling your story in a novel or an epic you have less moving parts to keep track of um in, in a single single work um you can also revel in a sense of accomplishment with each piece you get done. Um, it's a discrete package, so it's really easy to see where it falls in the um, overall structure of the story that you're telling. It does allow you to play with side stories more than you really can in a novel. Novels, it's really hard to actually play with side stories in a way that is satisfying to, to you or the reader that doesn't hurt your narrative. It will also expand um, your POVs because if you're writing in an episode format, you can kind of expand your POV um, stable uh, and explore outside perspectives or third party perspectives from your main um, to allow to, it, it just kind of broadens and enriches your the world building of your story. Uh, it just kind of builds you a different foundation that you would have in a novel than, you know, in a novella series. You can see other moving parts, other situations. Uh, it just it just offers you ability the ability to expand and shift the focus of your um, storytelling, which is something I did both in Sentinels of Atlantis and Harry Potter and the Soulmate Bond. And also, it, it allows you to advance time. And if you think about the scope of Sentinels of Atlantis, if I'd tried to tell that in a novel. It would have been and then and then and then and then and then and then 
And it would have been the most exhausting thing you'd ever read. Because it would have been one catastrophic event after another piled on top of you for 250k nonstop. And you can't do that in a novel. Well, you can, but it's really, really bad craft. Where in an episode format, it's event and consequences, event and consequences. In a novel, it's event, consequences, reflection, GMC, event. There's a bigger spread, and there are less events. You don't need as many events to move your plot forward in a novel than you do, say, in an episodic series like Sentinels of Atlantis, where every episode has an, an inciting event. Does that make sense? Yeah. yeah. And like in Sentinels of Atlantis, a uh, I, I have um, my subplots ended up being individual stories, like Bates coming online, Bates coming online off world. Going a little feral, almost naked sacrifice, you know, as one does. Sexy times. I, honestly, it's probably one of my favorite. I mean, the Queen's my favorite story in Sentinels of Atlantis, but um, Bates coming online feral is right up there. He's so contained and so precise. And like, boom. <laughs> I really enjoyed it. But that isn't the kind of story I could have told if I'd told Sentinels of Atlantis in a novel format. Because that would have happened from John's point of view. And you never would have seen any of that um, in the narrative. You would have seen the aftermath when John went to the planet to get Bates and Graham. And so that's one of the benefits of, of novellas or episodes um, is that you can explore um, side stories and subplots in a way that you cannot do in a novel without severely diluting your narrative and making it, um, in some cases, absolutely unreadable. Stupid chair. Weeks, you really didn't oil it very much. <laughs> I did, though. I just probably didn't order the right part. I just didn't oil the right part. Mistakes were made. I think I'm going to turn it upside down try again. Not now, obviously, but, you know, tomorrow. Um, what? So, I was, I was thinking about when it comes to subplots. Um, um, so, there's a little bit of a difference with how you handle these kinds of things. If you're going to, because since we're talking about the narrative style between doing like a novel versus a novella versus a episode series and sometimes you might split out your subplots in an episode and like handle your subplot like a lot of it not all of it thing about a subplot is you can't usually contain it in an episode it really shouldn't be able to be contained in an episode but you might be able to, to lay most of the groundwork for a subplot or um in in an episode and then it feeds back into the whole later that makes sense well, yeah. I mean, you see Bates and Graham coming together early on in the series, yeah. well before Bates comes online, um, and Graham being all in on, you know, helping Bates get rid of his heterosexuality, uh -huh. punching that card. Um, and so you see, because it's there needs to be a buildup, right? There needs to be a foundation. Uh, so that at least the reader sees it coming, even if the characters do not. Because you want to build anticipation. Do you know how hard it was for me to, like, not pause in the middle of that? Anticipation. <laughs> Anticipation. Um, 
<laughs> oh, honey, you're over an hour late. <laughs> um, but yeah, so laying your foundation and then you can pull the thread and you pull and you can pull that thread, whether you're doing a novella series, an episode series, a novella, a novel, pulling the thread of a subplot throughout your storyline is part of the weaving process. Do you have to pull it all the way to the end? No. As a matter of fact, you shouldn't. Some subplots will wrap sooner than others. Some subplots come up in the middle of your story, and they do wrap closer to the end of your story. It depends on the nature of the subplot, actually. Um, we've talked before that some romance can be a subplot. In a story where the romance is not the focus of the story, the romance can be a subplot. And But because it is a romantic pairing, that subplot might actually carry the whole story. Or it might carry, it might be one of the subplots it carries to the end because your romantic partner is there with your main character to the end. Um, but I think romance is one of the one of the types of subplots that's unusual in, the, in regard to the fact that it might carry to the end of the story. Um, usually you want to wrap up your subplots before the climax of your story. But romance as a subplot is a little bit different because um, it's just kind of like once once your characters are together, it's just kind of like running. It's like humming underneath. It's like you've introduced this new element. It sort of, it sort of feeds into the main plot. And I guess in that fact, is once they're together, you've wrapped the subplot, haven't you? I hadn't really considered I mean, it that way. Once I guess they it actually... depends on how together they are. Like, are they just banging? Or have there been like emotional bloodletting? <laughs> okay, so like, so like in De Novo, De Novo, this is the romance is not the it's not the plot. The plot is about Tony coming into his own and separating from Gibbs' his leadership style and becoming his own mm -hmm. person. Blah blah blah. The romance is definitely a subplot. So I guess you could say the the subplot wraps when they have made something of a commitment to one another. Like we're going to try this thing, um, as opposed to. Um, even though it's not like Ian goes away just because the, sub the subplot has wrapped up because he doesn't, but effectively um, the subplot is wrapped up once, once they're together, once they've had that emotional bloodletting. Yeah. See that hill, take that hill. Right. <laughs> Climb on that dick. <laughs> but sometimes the romance is the plot. And, and that's, that's an entirely different animal. Um, yeah. It also depends on uh, what romantic style you're writing. Like if, if you're writing for a particular um, romance line, for instance, uh, if you're you know trying to write professionally, um, there are criteria you have to meet. Like say in Harlequin Desire, which was an old, I'm not even sure if they still make them. Okay. It was an old line for Harlequin, right? Um, it was, I think it was in the 50K range. And in order for your two characters to go to bed together, they had to exchange I love yous. Still, it still exists. Really? I'm not sure if they still have that. That was in the 80s. That was one of the, um, one of the uh, rules. And uh, there was also a list of terms that you could not use. Uh, cock and pussy being two that stand out for me. That they were, they were not to be used. Um, you could use them in Harlequin Brazen, which... Was it Blaze? Blaze. It was Blaze. Harlequin Blaze. That came out in the early 2000s. You could use dirty words at Harlequin with Blaze. That was their erotica line. 
I mean, it, you know, there was so little foul language in Harlequin Desire. The first time I heard, I, I saw the word ass, I was shocked. I mean, it was just like, they used the word ass. <laughs> oh How my dare God. They? Clutch pearls. <laughs> but no, it was, it was not, I mean, publishers did not allow the use of words like cock pussy cunt even now getting cunt past a, a, a traditional romance publisher takes some serious work and some erotica publishers pop will block mm, i don't think so it depends there are still some sex acts that aren't allowed to be in traditional romance novels um i had a friend who was rejected from her harlequin line because she had anal sex in her story so it just it really depends on the line the publisher the editor um and, and what they allow and they all have specific guidelines there used to be an erotica publisher that required that the word cock appear a certain amount of times per five thousand words like if your story was 50k you better have at least 25 instances of the word cock which can get repetitive. I mean, sometimes you need to mix that it up. That math bit. is made up, but you know what I'm saying. It's like they had yeah. a specific number of times you had to use the word cock per word count. Which, like I said, sometimes you want to mix it up and you want to get some dick in there. You know, it's right? just, it gets to be like cock, 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 cock. It's like, <laughs> can we have a dick here, here, or there? You know, I, I occasional. Can we have a prick? I mean, occasional, I hate to say it. But can I use occasional, erection once? Occasional <laughs> erection. I do. I will mix it up occasionally with erection because it's like I just can't. No throbbing manhoods, Tim. Go to the corner <laughs> and stay there. That's it. Is this your first visit to the sin bin? Shouldn't be. <laughs> it seems like you probably. Aww, well, pop that just popped, we just popped your cherry. Yeah. yeah. Never use any kind of weaponry to refer to the cock. That's just disgusting. <laughs> no, someone does not need to do that, Shadow. <laughs> <laughs> Look at those emojis. Uh, Cherry does that like, and eight, does that, eight, does that, eight spoked asterisk. Okay. Asterisk, because I was thinking to myself, that is is, is that an asshole? <laughs> <laughs> no. <laughs> but you see it how you see it. <laughs> All y'all. Oh, think that bin. was the pot? Can I okay. put? Can I put? Can I put the whole chat in the sin bin? <laughs> it's a pictogram. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, so yeah, there used to be. I mean, there are still probably a lot of rules for different erotica lines. Oh my um, God, hers. <laughs> and what's a, a, a romance line? What's allowed? What's not allowed? Depending on the publisher and the editor, um, and. There are very established rules about it. Like, you know, okay, you, you can't go to bed until you've said I love you or at least one of or at least the man said I love you or the woman said I love you. It just depends. <laughs> I, just, I need tea. I'll be right back. <sighs> Nodding. Okay. Did you see what she put in the I did. I did. They were behind a spoiler tag, so of course, you know, I had to click. <laughs> I clicked. I, I I mean, what server? I, I, I feel like I want to know what server these are on. Because well, if you clicked on it, it tells you it's either private or unavailable. It's from another server. She's she'd have to be a nitro to be able to use another server's. Yeah. 
think Kaya wants to be in the sin bin. So normally I wouldn't yeah, reward obviously. that kind of thing. I don't know. I wouldn't obviously. kind of reward that kind of thing, but I feel like, I like that those emojis. <laughs> oh my God. When I click on the face one, that's dripping. <laughs> I know. Mm -mm -mm. Uh, mm -mm -mm. Okay. We were, um, one of the things that I do, um, as it involves secondary characters and subplots, is after I've zero drafted, I, I make a character list based on my zero draft. And I try to determine how they fit in the structure of my story so that I know what I'm going to, um, who I will need, what kind of character profiles I'll need, what will I need to adjust any of the character profiles that I have if I'm doing, you know, if I already have those character profiles built, do I need to make character profiles? Uh, and how are these characters going to be impacted by my story? But more importantly, how is my main character or characters going to be impacted by these people? And where do I need them in my subplots? Because mm -hmm. sometimes you will find that you don't need two or three people. You just need one. Or other times you will find that you actually need two. One of them could be canon. And one, you need something else because, or someone else, because no one in canon quite fits. And it's better to make an original character than to try to wedge a canon character into a place that don't fit. It's jarring and no. And sometimes you don't know that till you're in the writing. And other times you'll know it from the very start. Like when I zero drafted Ties That Bind, I knew. I knew that there wasn't a single character in Stargate canon that could fit the spot I had for Kevin Jordan. There wasn't a single one. No. No. Not even the people we hate. No. I almost, I almost made Jack O'Neill one of Gerard Desaad's disciples. I decided against it. And went a different direction in the zero draft for him. Uh, so, in that respect, all of my um, all of the disciples had to be original characters. But there was a time when I did consider something different for that early on in the planning stage. But these are the decisions that a plotter makes up front, and that I think that a pantser makes on the fly, and then we'll have to kind of adjust and revamp during. Um, yeah, Aaron Hotchner. Yeah. Yeah, now, it would have changed things. It would have changed I, things quite a bit if Rodney, if Jack had been a disciple. Oh yeah, of, um, yeah, a lot. Sam Carter would have been probably put under a prison. Um, Aaron Hotchner, I inserted Aaron Hotchner into the disciples because I wanted to write a criminal minds arc for Ties to Bind. That was the entire reason that I put Aaron Hotchner in there because he wasn't in there originally. Well, the fact of the matter is, is that if Jack O'Neill had been a disciple. He would have given Sam Carter the shovel talk before she ever married McKay. So there's that as well. When it come, yeah, I did say shovel talk. You never heard that term, but okay, it's when somebody takes a person aside and tells them, "Hey, this is my best friend, my sister, my brother, my mother, my father, whoever. I love them, and if you mistreat them." I'm going to fuck you up and I may need a shovel when we're done. It, it might've been mentioned on Buffy, but it's older than dirt. In Buffy, it went something like, if you hurt my friend, I'll beat you to death with a shovel. 
and they said, well, <laughs> that's it's like a vague disclaimer is no one's friend. Um, yeah, and then I'll I'll use it. I'll take a shovel to you, and then use it to bury and use it to bury your body, which was a little you know graphic. But and they literally said a vague disclaimer is nobody's friend. But but yeah, um, I mean that 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 particular phrase is older than dirt. I mean, my grandfather said it. Yeah, um, I will say it did catch on a lot in pop culture because of Buffy. Um, it's ubiquitous in fandom is probably attributed attributable to people who are. <laughs> Otherwise, it probably is a little of a regional thing. Um, but anyway, uh, but I agree. Uh, certainly, my grandfather said it. It may be a, a good old Southern expression. I mean, and my grandpa died in 89. Wow. Wow, yeah, 89. How would you deal with a subplot you started threading through and then realized it'll blow out the story of proportion and have to change it, especially if it'll change the plot you've planned and written so far? Well, that's a damned unsatisfactory situation, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, sometimes it happens as your subplot gets bigger than your plot. Um, that means you're, you're you're telling the wrong story is is what it means, or that your subplot is going to grow into your sequel, and that's not necessary. And that that can happen. It's like you're kind of basically then what you're more doing is you're kind of laying the foundation for your next story, but you then have to moderate how much you deal with your subplot and make sure you're able to wrap it up in a satisfactory way, even though you're going to leave it unresolved until your next story. Which, you see this happen, I'm trying to think of an example, but I mean, I kind of feel like I was teasing at the back of my brain, like an instance where I've seen something where like what seems like it's the subplot gets bigger and bigger, and then it kind of is unresolved, and then it becomes the big plot for the next season. But part of that could also be that you might, if you're if you're, if you're more interested in your subplots, then I agree, you're probably telling the wrong story. Um, but you may need to go back and rein yourself in and force yourself to scale down the subplot so that it's not so, I mean, it's hard to speak in the abstract about this. Um, I mean, it could be, or it could be you started your story in the wrong place. You're telling your story from the wrong point of view. You thought you were telling one story, but you're actually telling another. Or you left yourself a really big, giant hole. I'm not going to say it's a plot hole, but a hole in your plot that you're driving your subplot through. Like an 18-wheeler. And so you're, you have to ask yourself, what should be here instead? And if this subplot is taking over, why is it taking over? Is it just because it interests you more? And if that's the case, then maybe you need to go back to the drawing board and tell that story instead. And sometimes that happens. Sometimes you wind up weirdly more interested in your subplot than you do in your plot. Um, I'm getting out. You're telling the wrong story and you move on. And it's okay to set something aside and say, okay, this isn't working. Let me start this from a different perspective and work on this part instead. Now, during a challenge, that can be difficult. Um, Obviously, like if you're in rough trade or if you're doing a bang and you, you're on a time constraint. Um, and, and, and this is when discipline comes into play. But in the end, it's going to be your decision. Well, yeah. I mean, you can cry a little on the outside, too, if you want. But you can always backtrack and take it out so it stops being a distraction. And you'll be the only one to know that it's missing. Unless you were writing it in public and then you had to edit it. Which, you know... <sighs> From experience, I can tell you that you could edit a single fucking sentence and 25 people will tell you about yourself even a year later. Yeah. Um, 
it's it's something I wrote recently in um, the Dark Road. Um, the subplot with Styles and his magic could have easily gotten out of control. It was very um, fascinating. I myself was intrigued by it, um, but it was not the point of the story. So I had to force myself to rein myself in. Um, if I wrote the sequel that I had plotted for that story, which would be more from Peter's point of view and about him growing his pack, Styles' magic would be much more central to the main plot of that story. But in order to not let the the plot, the story that I had planned to tell, get consumed by this interesting side thing, I had to really force myself to pare back some of the details that I wanted to put in to the to the story that were were interesting me that I was interested in, but that were distracting. And it wasn't that this wasn't a case of where. I was telling the wrong story because I was absolutely telling the story that I wanted to tell, but it was more a case of where my subplot was interesting me enough that it was becoming like a squirrel kind of thing. It was like shiny object syndrome. And if I didn't want to dilute the story that I was telling about Dot and her, her devotion to Peter, that I needed to, to not get too off track. So I made myself rein myself in. That was the choice I made for that story. So in that story, I don't think that I shortchanged the original, the original plot by leaving out elements, and I didn't shortchange the subplot. But all the elements are there to set the foundation for the sequel if I choose to go that path someday. But it was a matter of restraining myself for good storytelling and, and not getting diverted. So that's the way I chose to handle it in that instance. I don't know if that helps at all with the question. Okay, good. Good. I some sometimes you fall in love with a subplot. Sometimes you fall in love with a sub a secondary character here. And <laughs> mm -hmm. uh-huh. Sometimes other people fall in love with your secondary characters and then they won't stop bugging you about them. Here. <laughs> Armand, but tier, <laughs> but tier two, but Armand. I love Armand. I love Armand. Um, honestly, um, Absence of War is probably one of my favorite writing experience in the past five years. It's it's glorious. Um, just, I'm really looking forward to having Armand be in my rough trade as well. Um, he won't appear though until uh, part three in November. So, oh. uh, I mean, I, I told Kira when I first read Absence of War. Um, that I had a big old inappropriate crush on Armand <laughs> <laughs> and his nephews, which makes the situation even more inappropriate. <laughs> I would actually really enjoy writing a um, story about Quentin Deadmarsh. So I, I, I like Walker too, but I would really like to write a story with Quentin I think you've explored much. Quentin more, so we have a better feel for him. But I really, I would, I, would, I think I developed a real affinity for the first time for Walker in the absence of war. So you know, Walker's the quiet one. You know, you know, he's the one that you'll never see coming. Yeah, I like that kind. <laughs> yeah. So I, you know, it's it's interesting, and in um in this in the third book in my series this year, um, Walker and Quentin will be at Hogwarts as students. Oh, that's lovely. There are they are uh, second and fourth years, I believe, 
I have it written down. So, um, they won't act. I'm not sure. I mean, I have them in my zero draft. I'm not sure how I feel about it. Um, they may or may not. Um, you, you may see them in passing because there will be a moment when, when Harry will have to go to Hogwarts to receive, to retrieve the Horcrux. And so, um, I don't know if that will take place during the school year or not, but I have it as a potential. I'm still kind of fiddling with that part of my zero draft, making decisions. Yeah. So we shall and you see. Got, and you may make changes based upon how your first story or first two stories go. So, mm -hmm. But physical time travel, that's going to be a new thing for me. So I don't... And you got to try new things. New things are a good thing to do. And also the one thing about physical time travel that, that's really kind of kind of percolating in my brain is the um, is ripple management. Um, and just what they're fit, what just what them being moving and moving around in this world is going to do and what it has the potential to do and how easy it is for them to change who is born. Yeah, it would be. Because while the Potters might have a child in July of 1980, there's no guarantee they'll have Harry. In fact, it's very likely that they won't. Because conception one day sooner. One hour sooner. And Harry Potter never exists. Or if he does, he's not the same boy. He wouldn't even look the same. He could have red hair. Well, no, there won't be a prophecy child. That's part of the fix-it. Uh, <laughs> well, actually, what it really boils down to is that the prophecy child appears in the past um, before the prophecy ever gets set down. And uh, Harry does his job twice for fate. <laughs> Since I'm here. Like, well, the hand of fate's on your head. Well, there you go. Um, so when it, I think when it comes to secondary characters, um, it can be it can be difficult to actually manage, a, especially if you've got a big cast of characters. And sometimes you've even got a big cast of secondary characters. Um, giving them all the time, especially if you're going to give them and actually bring them to the status of secondary character. And so I think you want to do that judiciously and make sure that you can give them the attention they deserve as a secondary character. Um, meaning that they're not just on the screen to provide um, dialogue for your main, you know, somebody to talk to for your main character, you know, somebody for them to talk at. That's not the function of a secondary character. That's a tertiary character. Yeah, that's the function of a Uber driver. Yeah, bar, right, exactly. Um, somebody who maybe doesn't even need an, an, an unnamed character, you know, a non playing character, um, non player character. So if you're going to make them actually a secondary character, um, you have to flesh them out to some degree. They need to have a character voice, they need to have um, a distinct. And sometimes it's a secondary character because they might have distinct things going on in their life because you can't expect if you've got, you know, if you've got like an ensemble cast that you're working with and you've said, okay, of these eight main characters on the show, I'm going to say these two are my main characters and the other six are my secondary characters. Um, they're not all going to be having smooth sailing in their lives, you know, so you might have some little side mentions of so-and-so's having a bad day. Um, you have to be prepared to deal with that if you're going to bring them in as secondary characters and actually use them that way, or at least give them space to have their emotional reactions and to say, Hey, you know, I, I, I think we need to talk about how I'm feeling today or whatever. Um, like um, 
in absence of war, since we just were talking about that. Um, Rizal's a secondary character, but you know, there are moments when he's like, you know, I'm not okay with what you two did. I'm not okay with it. It wasn't just about his parents. There were moments when he's like, that's hey. all, that's all the world. Oh, that's all the world. Sorry, all the world. Mm -hmm. Sorry, I'm getting I'm getting my. Uh, I just read both those stories back to back, so <laughs> <laughs> just all goes around in my head. He binged it. I did. I, I binged. I binged Kira's Harry Potter stories. Um, yeah, Rizal, uh, all the world. Um, he um, with their time travel. There's when he finds out what they did. There's that moment when he's like, he has his reaction, and there's that moment, that moment where he, he can breathe as a character. The character seems to breathe on the page, where it's like he has reactions and he's a real. It's not so. It's not like it's not like moves into full on side story or anything or subplot, but it doesn't shortchange him as a character either. He, it's like in that moment, he found out that his parents lived and died, and lived again. Right, he's not going to be happy about that. And, even and moreover, so that they that well, what he says is to his father is that you know uh, that what you did was you have to know that what you did was the hardest thing he ever had to see. Yeah, no matter how long it lasted, it broke his heart. And and the result of the future slash past time travel is such a pain in the ass. Um, right, he he had his moment too. Um, of of being heartbroken, so you have to give your character, you know, secondary characters, um, space to, but not too much space. It's a balancing act. <laughs> it is a balance, just like subplots are a balancing act. You have to let them breathe and be fully realized characters in and of themselves, without deep diving into every aspect of their life and childhood. Because that's you don't even deep dive in your main characters to that degree. But there are times I read a story where we're getting these deep dives onto secondary characters, sometimes even tertiary characters, and I'm like, why? Well, I don't need this information. I don't even care. So sometimes there will be a tertiary character that you know a lot about that you never even see on screen, though. Like Fire Black Axe, you know that her father um, is a master tailor. You know that he dressed Harry uh, head to toe, pants included. <laughs> we don't talk about Harry but, Potter's pants. But didn't give him uh, pants to wear under his ritual robe. <laughs> He's still pissed about it. <laughs> I thought, it was a very, I thought it was a very good question he asked. Was it, or was that an absence of war that he asked why the ritual? It was an absence of war. Why, why I thought that was a little kid question. Why he couldn't have pants made out of the ritual robe material. Which was, I thought it was a good question, though. But if you don't want to be naked, why can't you have that? We should have pants. Pants too much to ask for. Apparently it is. And you know that his daughter is very successful, so successful that she often um, guards the back of their chieftain. We know we're talking about his underpants. We are most definitely talking about his underpants. About his underpants. Yeah, we knew. We only use underwear. Uh, we, we only use we only use pants in that context, American as we are, um, when we're talking about Harry Potter. Anybody else's pants? <laughs> we're talking about their trousers. <laughs> But Harry's pants are his underpants, <laughs> because we have been we've we've been assimilated. <laughs> uh, I, don't think, just, I don't think ritual panties are too much to ask for either. I really don't. Oh, it was very difficult to get used to 
pants being underwear. Um, because honestly, it, it is difficult to write a British person undressing. And I'm like, okay, slacks, trousers, they're pants. <laughs> Except he can't take his pants off twice. <laughs> well, and the other thing is every time that a character says I'm pants at potions, I just go, y'all talk about your underwear a lot. <laughs> But anyway, <laughs> look, your underwear is none of my business, okay? <laughs> but, but yeah, so I had to get used to, I had to find other words <clears throat> to describe. It's like trousers, slacks, jeans. Jean, depending on the pants, you jeans, got- you know, the sty- style, uh, cargo pants. Often I'll t- describe the style of pants instead of the pants themselves. It's like, I mean, you know, the cargos. Do y'all have cargo pants or are they called something else? Are they called cargo trousers? <laughs> because that's weird. <laughs> they just called cargos. You must have pants with pot. Well, you t- do. You, what do you do with trousers with utility pockets? What do you call them? You hate the word slacks. I don't hate it, but I just don't. Pr- I don't. I mean, it doesn't fit. Slacks are a very specific type of trousers. You don't know <sighs> if you have. Okay. Well. Okay. Rubbers. The first time I I, I saw in a story someone wearing rubbers on their feet. I was a little confused. But that's also the same thing the first time I saw thongs on somebody's feet. Now, in America, thongs are flip-flops. <laughs> uh, in British English, they're called combats or combat trousers. I can't. I refuse. Or just cargoes. More... Sargo... Or just cargoes. Or just cargoes. Okay, so slacks would be more formal trousers for us, too. Yeah. So that thong song that you guys hear about, they're not talking about something you put on your feet. (laughs) Just in case you were confused. (laughs) The thong song is about underwears. (laughs) About butt floss. Okay. (laughs) I was trying to be delicate. What for? (laughs) I don't know why you're I know, the, trying to play half, song, song while I'm being delicate. Half half this half this crew is in the tin bin. I don't think that there's a delicate person here. <laughs> I don't like the word chinos. Eh, I can, I can, I, it's not my favorite word, but it is it does fit a specific t- style of t- trousers. But I have to are, say, writing and writing Harry Potter as an adult did make me really think about how to undress a man in Britain because trousers. <laughs> Just take off all your clothes, please. Lady Holder, you are in the Sin Bin Hall of Fame. I thought you knew. You're always in the Sin Bin. It's a permanent fixture of your life. If you're feeling left out. (laughs) You were the first person, as a matter of fact, in the Sin Bin Hall of Fame. That is a cute song, though. I wouldn't want to wear it, but it's cute. I mean... You could, if you don't like chinos, you could use khakis. They're not exactly the same thing, but um, they're close enough for government work. Uh, they called all underwear Y fronts because that's, I, I don't wear Y fronts. Okay. <laughs> Although I did apparently wear them when I was little because I felt like I needed a Superman underwear and they didn't make Superman underwear for little girls. So my mama bought me little boy underwear. And sewed the flap up. <laughs> because apparently I thought it was a pocket. <laughs> well, yeah. <laughs> a pocket. <laughs> it could be. If you're, if you're, if you could be. It, 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 it's a dick, it's a dick pocket. 
<laughs> it's a dick retrieval pocket. <laughs> um, I agree. Why front does make me think of tidy whities though I recognize that it's not strictly tidy whities Yeah, and there's nothing actually really attractive about tidy whities Um, I've seen a couple of guys though that it was like, holy crap. Well, Why yeah, am I, I mean, tidy like, whities height? There, there are exceptions to every rule, but for the most part, no. <laughs> Um. Well, maybe. Yeah, now they make Superman and Spider Man and um, Hulk underwear for girls, but they didn't when I was little. It was really disappointing. That's okay though. I made the best of it, even if my mama did sew up my pocket. <laughs> How do we get there? Oh, ritual pants. <sighs> anyway, off of ritual pants, back to secondary characters and subplots. So, <laughs> um. Be careful about how many secondary characters you're going to put in your story because you don't want to have, um, you don't want to shortchange your story. Like you don't want your story, you don't want people reading go, but man, it, it would make sense for this character to be here. Why aren't they? You don't want, you don't want a, a lack of a character to be obvious, but you also don't want to throw more characters in than you need. I, I edited something for somebody one time, or at least I tried to. Um, and there were so many characters in a scene that, I couldn't keep up. I think there were easily 25 or 30 characters in the scene and they all had dialogue. That um and every and the thing is this was like 20,000 words of these characters just getting introduced and getting to know each other. And this was just like the first like this is I, I, she's like I can't figure out why my first chapter is going on for so long. I'm like you really can't figure that out. Why does everybody need to get introduced on screen? Um yeah, there was the huff of judgment. It has to come. It has to come. But you don't need to, don't put yourself in that. It was a lot of writing that served no purpose. Because these are, these are questions, these are characters that I wouldn't even call tertiary characters because they serve no function in the story other than to be the named children of so-and-so's brother-in-law, you know. Um, and yet we're, we're meeting them on screen, talking about when they were born, how old they are, they're talking. It's like... Are they going to serve a function later? If the answer, and I asked specifically, what function do these people serve? Oh, none. none. Who who matters in the story? Well, we haven't met the people who matter yet. It's just uh, the, the th three or four people who were there at the beginning who walked in together and met all these people. They're the ones who matter. So they met a bunch of people who don't matter. And you spent like 20,000 words meeting people who don't matter. You could have just said that. They spent, they, they spent 20 minutes meeting people who don't matter and saved yourself, you know, a lot this of time is writing. It's important to know how to lampshade because I think that's when it's important to summarize, but well, yeah, but also it's like, what if these people existing serves a purpose, you need to you need to lampshade it mm. and not introduce them individually. There is a scene in spirit born where Bella and Thorin and the company have gone to her uncle's, Hobbit hole that took and they're having a they're all huffy because they didn't get to have a party for her you know Bella's secret marriage and you meet one hobbit in that whole crowd of people and you only meet him because he is a example of a situation in the Shire that Bella has been dealing with since she came of age in that she's had a lot of interest in her and it's interest. Sometimes it's hostile interest and they don't know why. Well, it's because she's spirit born and, but they don't know that yet. 
And then she goes back to have this meeting with her grandfather, um, with Thorin, and about half the Shire eventually migrating because the Shire is, um, the magic is being overtaxed. Now, there are probably 50 or 60 hobbits in that first room that Bella is in, but you only meet one of them by name, even though there's a whole bunch of them. But you know that there's a whole bunch in there because she talks, you know, she's like, there's all these people here. You don't want to, you don't want to mention that. And then he mentions it anyway. And he's not trying to say, well, it wasn't a really great party we had with the elves, but they're still offended. You know, so I didn't need to name them all. And that's where lampshading comes in when it comes to creating a scene where there's a whole bunch of people without individually naming them and laying out their family tree and talking about how their great uncle Fred rode a horse because he was tall enough. What's it? Bull rider? Bull rider took like could ride the horse. Oh, bull roar. Bull roar. Bull roar. Yeah. I'm just saying you didn't need, you didn't need that introduction. All you need, Bella kind of gave you a summary of what was going on in the room while she was thinking about having to deal with Bruno Bracegirdle in front of her. And then again, when she was trying to get Thorne to shut his mouth while he was admitting they had a party without her took relatives. <laughs> so it wasn't necessary. But I could have spent 25k introducing all those hobbits. I I'm guess. glad you didn't. I mean, I didn't, you know. I'm glad you didn't. Just... Concept conceptually, I'm glad that you didn't waste your time doing that. Um, but that is a kind of lampshading. You're, yeah. Did you okay. go away? No, I'm just thinking. It's a way of, of giving your reader a bigger picture without explaining the bigger picture to the nth degree. Yeah. I mean, even even the even the word "show not tell" um, can be pithy advice. Because it should be more show the things that matter, right? Mm -hmm. Don't tell the things that matter. Show them. Show the things that are important on screen. The important scenes, you know, the stuff that matters you need to show. Summarize, you know, give, give a couple of lines about, you know, and Thorin met the rest of Bella's family and they had a terrible time or whatever. Um, you don't need to... It's not even a matter of tell everything that happened because telling everything unimportant isn't even the goal either. It's a matter of don't focus on the unimportant things. Some things you can just summarize, like um, like let's say you've done a time skip because nothing really significant happened in the time during the time skip period in your story, and you spend a paragraph like somewhere in there. Um, quickly summarizing what happened during that week. And that paragraph, you might um, help establish uh, how much time has passed. Like over the course of the last week, they had spent time moving into their new apartment, right? As opposed to showing them moving into their new apartment. If nothing happens, like, you know, an earthquake that put one of them in the hospital during the move, there's no point in showing people moving. <laughs> earthquake. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah, I mean, you don't need to give me a blow-by-blow blow of somebody's shower unless they're getting blown in their shower. Well, unless get, right, exactly, exactly where my brain went to, unless they're getting blown in the shower. <laughs> and then please give me the blow-by-blow. Blow. Um, <laughs> like, um, he came home, he took a shower, he brushed his teeth and went to bed. I don't need a step-by-step -step of that. No. Of course you have. I lived in earthquake country for like 25 years. and I, The moment you said I, it, I knew it had happened to you. <laughs> 
It's like, yep, she definitely had an earthquake in the middle of the move. I have an earthquake. I've been on. I've been an earthquake. That was on a just business trip. It was just very specific. Um, but yeah, I mean, sometimes you get bogged down in the details, and the details are ridiculous. Yeah. You can do the same thing with secondary characters. You can do the same thing with subplots, and it all boils down to discipline and moderation. You gotta know when to hold them, and who's who's you're holding. <laughs> um, but when it comes to when it comes to like doing a time skip, you can just summarize. You know, and how you summarize it can also be more or less interesting. You can just, you know, they you know they got him moved in, everything was unpacked, and blah 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 blah. Or you could just like, you know, have your character like flop on the couch and go, "Thank God we got all the moving done. Get over here and fuck me." That's much more interesting way of saying. <laughs> Thank God the moving's done. <laughs> but either way is better than giving the reader a blow by blow of a move, you know, the renting the truck and getting the stuff and um, taking stuff to goodwill and giving the blow by blow of all that stuff if it's not moving your story forward, if that's not relevant. Okay. So, like when it comes to the show, don't tell thing, um, picking what you're going to show is important so is choosing what you're going to tell because you do have to tell some things some things are worth summarizing quickly or giving just a quick two sentences about you know um how harry potter's classes went that day or whatever his first day at school or his shopping trip rather than belaboring the shopping trip harry potter went shopping and got an entire new wardrobe the lack of specifics will serve you later <laughs> He didn't buy green trousers, Kira. No one needs that conversation. No one needs it. What did Ellie write? <laughs> I'm going to have to edit that shit out. <laughs> oh, my God. <sighs> yeah, yeah, totally. <laughs> totally. Totally had that coming. Um. Oh, good Lord. Okay. <sighs> okay. So, um, when it comes to the whole show and tell thing, um, just use what you're going to put on. The, again, we, we talked about pithy advice. Show don't tell is, is pithy advice because it's not telling the whole story. Show what's important to your story. That's, the, that's what you should show is what's important. Not show everything, because people showing like everything is people showing everything is how you wind up getting a detailed lesson on how to paint a room, including how to tape off the windows and tape off the baseboards, and <laughs> and I'm sitting there reading it at one point and finding going, this is so much detail I can actually tell that you actually haven't painted a room because you just did that wrong. <laughs> That's not how you do that. You should cut those corners in first. I don't know what's wrong with you. <laughs> And why don't you have a drop cloth down? I mean, how could you lift off the drop cloth? This is what happens when you put in all the details. People start noticing the things you don't put in. I write notes about podcasts to kind of like keep myself on track. It doesn't always work. Obviously, you can tell. Um, but for that show versus tell thing, I wrote, show me the money. Just the money? Just the money. Just the money. Show me the money. We do not turducken often. Turducken is a very special experience. Turducken isn't even, I mean, that, that's like a whole, that's, that's next level. 
Um, I think some people get, I'm very attached to my original characters. I kind of see them as an ensemble cast, you know, that I can like put into anything I want to put them in. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's really helpful. I have all these different bios and stuff, and it's really helpful to move them around to different um, stories and see how they're going to fit into the story or versus that story. And it's um, it's also sometimes tempting to put characters in I do not need. So when I was writing Heart of a Lion, um, I have I, I had a scene, Heart of a Lion. I had a scene um, on Earth where John is being um, is, is going through some exercises for the Marine Corps, and Meredith is off to the side with her little laptop and doing her little thing, and um, this general comes through and tries to talk to her. Well, she's an asshole to him, but that's just what Meredith is, right? Um, and in my zero draft, th- this general didn't have a name, but when I wrote it. Oh no, Rampart has a part in it. I mean, he has a part in the actual Zero Draft. Rampart's a commandant of the Marine Corps. So John met, had already met him at this point. But I did insert George, uh, um, Kevin Jordan because I didn't have a, 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 a I, I didn't have a name in my Zero Draft. And so when I wrote it, um, he has two scenes, that scene and another scene um, in, in George Hammond's office. I almost took him out because he's so polarizing and ties that bind that he almost felt like a red herring in Heart of the Lion. Now, he's a dick, but he's a dick with a career that's going nowhere, which is how I wrote it in the Zero Draft. And he is this um, he's this general, a, a paper pusher who. Um, never really got anywhere and he's biased against sentinels. And that's part of the reasons why he's never gotten anywhere. Uh, and so he's about to be forced to retire. He's on the wrong end of the promotion zone, so to speak. And I forget the term that I, that I, that I looked up for that. He's out of the zone. Lady holder. Do you know what I mean? Um, and uh, so I use Kevin Jordan and I, and even now I'm, I'm, I'm wondering if he's a, um, if it's a kind of a red herring because he's such a problem in ties that bind and he's just a bump in the road in the heart of the lion. But then I thought actually that's really interesting that he is just a bump in the road that he's not really of any significance in our, in, 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 in this world because of his attitude and his, his bias, which is different than it is in ties that bind and he has less power. And so I kept him, but it's very curious because it isn't often that I use someone like Kevin Jordan more than once. Yeah, Unless they... it's that guy um, in Harry Potter that I, I, I have two versions of Croker. Uh, um, Croker. I have Jonah McGregor, who's the good one. And then I have Tobias Savage, who's the bad one. Um, but Kevin Jordan's a different animal. And so, yeah. But it's, but it's, an, it, it's an interesting, what's your word, dichotomy? Mm-hmm. So... But if he only appears in one scene, he's and he's probably not. He's not probably not. Wouldn't rise to the level of a secondary character. He's probably more tertiary. Yeah, he is. He, he is more tertiary. Um, he well, yeah, he's definitely tertiary. He's he's an um um he's an NPC. Uh, so but it's just an interesting. <laughs> it struck me funny, Susan. That's what happens. <laughs> Ritual panties. So when you put a secondary character in your story, um, it can be it can be tempting, especially if you like the secondary character, to get distracted by um, their story. 
And if their story, whatever's going on with them, isn't feeding back into, you might be calling it a subplot, but if it's not feeding back into your main plot, which means it has something to do with your main character, it's not really a subplot, which means it's a side story. And you kind of probably don't want to get your, let yourself get distracted by that um, because you could be like derailing your story arc. Um, and derailing your narrative and then putting yourself into a bad place. So you just have to kind of be cautious. I almost did that with tear in um, all the world. And, you know, the reader, the the, the parts of the reader who really loves tear wanted you to, but I get how it's not, it wasn't good craft. You You lost me. Can you hear me now? Hello. Can you hear me? I can hear you. Yeah. I, I lost you for a bit there. Go ahead. Um, uh, I was blanking out. What was I saying? <laughs> um, tear. Yes. Oh, the readerly parts of us that really like Tear, of course, wanted you to just keep going and going and going. But I get how it wasn't good craft to do that. I completely get it. Um, oh, yeah, I had a whole subplot about it that, that, I, that I had to pull. Understand, you know, I and I, I completely understand why because it it was, he's intriguing and it's like you, you go I want to know I want to know I want to know all about him, I'm curious about, you know everything about this character but, you also don't want to distract from your main storyline so those are the hard choices you have to make when you've got a really interesting character like that. Um, I would like to write a tear-centric story where Harry goes to the bank and hires a lawyer. I need a lawyer. Do you really? <laughs> what kind of lawyer would you like? <laughs> he had plotted one like that where he was um, like 11 and hired him outside the bank. But that was when I asked to borrow tear, actually. But yeah. kind of, I haven't uh, progressed very far with that other than... I think that would actually be a good spot to do it, like after he blew up his aunt. But um, I was thinking more like actually around first year, um, like when Hagrid's in the bank. That's a, that's a good spot too. He could you could totally ruin Dumbledore's life, which is always worth doing. Yeah, messing. But wouldn't up it be kind of funny if I like okay, you want you want to hire a lawyer and and they give him a list and he's like looking through the list and he's like, Warhide. Hmm. It hires him by name. <laughs> That sounds badass. Well, wouldn't an eleven-year-old boy do that? Yeah, he totally would. That sounds really badass. I want that one. <laughs> I mean, it's tempting to do it when he needs a when he actually needs a lawyer, which would be uh, before fifth year. But um, but I like fixing things for him way before then. You know? Yeah, because that gives you an option to fix serious. Yeah. But there are like there there are several times in canon when when Harry Potter could have used a lawyer. A second year when he was accused of underage magic that he didn't do. Um, when his name comes out of the Goblet of Fire. Yep. And then fifth year when he's expelled. <laughs> and that too. Yeah, I mean, yeah, he pretty much needs a lawyer from the moment he entered. <laughs> Agreed. Poor puppy. <laughs> Letters to my lawyer. The headmaster says, if I go to the third floor. <laughs> we'll be right there. We'll be right there, Harry. Do not go to the third floor. <laughs> For fuck's sake. <laughs> Dear Tear, I found a basilisk <laughs> in the Chamber of Secrets. 
Oh, for fuck's sake. <laughs> yeah, God damn it, Harry. Rizelle's like, you know, when you took on your first wizarding client and you told me it was Harry Potter, I was okay with it. I was. But you're never home. <laughs> the kids don't even know what you look like anymore. Well, I told you there was plenty of work for both of us. Somebody had to render that damn basilisk. <laughs> there was a troll. <laughs> it's just, it's horrible. It's a class action lawsuit waiting to happen. <laughs> Would you just adopt that kid for heaven's sakes? I can't deal with this anymore. <sighs> but yeah, I mean, you know, I I find Tyr fascinating as a character, and I would love to explore. Um, I would just love to dig in. Yeah, he's good. And so sometimes you have a character that you get really fascinated by. And no matter how much you like your secondary characters um, or your original characters, because you're fascinated by them does not mean you're telling the wrong story. It just means you're intrigued. Okay. Because we were talking earlier about how when you're struggling with a subplot that's gotten too big, that you might be telling the wrong story. I don't think this is an example of you're telling the wrong story. I think this is an example of you just are intrigued by your this thing you've created. And you may need to give yourself another story in which to explore this particular creation, Kira Marie. Um, <laughs> you may need to give yourself another story, Kira. Oh, really? Um, Okay, fine. But it was the right choice in that story to not get distracted because that wasn't, it wasn't, because just because he was just, he was intriguing and he was fascinating doesn't mean that there's anything wrong with the existing plot. And that's a, that's a case of where you have to sit down and have a, a real come to Jesus moment with yourself and say, what is going on here? Am I just intrigued by this character and want to spend some more time with them? Or am I telling the wrong story and I'm like off? I should be focusing on this subplot instead of the plot. Um, I, I was in, you know, you know, inappropriately fascinated with the character. Um, but, and the subplot wasn't really about him. It was about Roselle and, um, and Harry's reaction to Roselle being in danger. And then tears response to the whole thing, you know? Yeah. But I had to pull it all out because it was, it was just, distraction yeah yeah it, it, it was too much and by the time it would have occurred in the in the narrative i no longer needed that narrative beat to have ragnarok and harry had already come as far as they were going to in their relationship and it was no longer necessary for harry to prove himself to ragnarok to prove that he wasn't the same person that ragnarok had to deal with in the other timeline you know, I was working on this thing, um, and I created an OC that I actually liked. It was a case of I liked the OC a little bit too much, and the OC was supposed to serve a very small function in the story. And um, I actually had to make the OC a little less, to me, a little bit less appealing, um, or I had to give them a significant, I'll, I'll call it a significant flaw, Um to make them less interesting relationship material because the goal was never to, to, for them to be a main relationship. They were supposed to be kind of a friend. Um, 
somebody to kind of, for one of my characters to have sex with, they weren't supposed to be, um, they weren't supposed to be a long-term love interest. So I kind of had to, in order for me to be able to kind of get past my own intrigue with the character, I kind of had to make them a little bit less um, interesting or not so much less interesting, but make them have a significant flaw. And, um, and that helped. And I don't mean, um, I didn't make them unlikable. I don't want to mean, mean to imply that way, but I just had to basically make them bad relationship material. And it worked. I know exactly. it yeah, it, yeah, it worked. <laughs> you, you know who I'm talking about, don't you? I do because when I read that, I went, "Damn it!" <laughs> because I was like, "Huh," and then I was, "Oh, oh, well, that'd be terrible." I that, hate that, that guy. I mean, but no, I don't hate him particularly, but I hate that kind of guy. Yeah, yeah. Because I think we've all met that kind of guy, and it's like, "Damn it, damn it all." Why? So. You know, but I could use that character again in something else and not have that particular quirk that makes him really shitty dating material. And I do mean really, really bad dating material. The kind of person, like, once you realize this thing about somebody, you're like, oh, yeah, okay, we can have fun, but we can never date. You're just bad. And, you know, and the thing is, it's not like he doesn't know he's bad relationship material, but. It's like, you can suck my dick, but I'm going to go home at the end of this. <laughs> right. <laughs> So, but I needed to do that because I Speaking needed to of, make my husband tells me I need to stop saying that because he said you sound 14 and you have no business saying suck my dick. I, just, I, I said, I sound at least 16 and suck my dick. <laughs> yeah, suck her dick. Um, <laughs> But I needed to do that so that I could get past my own because my it's like my fingers were itching to get them. Um, more involved than my plot accounted for because there was nothing in my plot that accounted for those two actually getting romantically involved but i was liking the character and i was like oh i think i'll i'm like nope nope i gotta i gotta do something to curb curb my own impulses okay i'm gonna put this this i'm gonna do this it's mean but i'm gonna do it so sometimes that's what you do sometimes you just gotta just gotta do, do the harsh thing with yourself it's not unlike kill your darlings but it's not quite kill your darlings. I mean, but also you don't want to go too far the other way. And you can tell me, did I? Did I go too far? No, you know you didn't, because I, I would have told you. Because then it's like, if, if you take it too far the other way, you, the reader will start to question, oh my God, why did you do that to the character? Like, not, not, not you personally, but like, why is this character even thinking about going on a second date with this jackass? Right, because then it makes you it, it'll make the reader question the character's judgment, and it could, especially in the circumstances that she was dealing with, makes the reader question his journey, which was a lot about emotional health and um, self esteem, self esteem, and so to to be dating somebody who was like a dick um, would, yeah, not be good. So. Um, but sometimes you do play just, I'll call it like little, you do little things like that to kind of try to help yourself um, along. Um, that's the way I chose to handle it was to just give this character kind of a fatal flaw so that I wouldn't be tempted to be like, I can't possibly put him in a relationship with this guy because, you know, all he's into is this. And that's fine. I mean, you just, you do that to kind of help yourself um, manage your own. That was, that was as much managing my own 
impulse to explore that character than anything else, right? Um, that wasn't about the story at all. That was about um, my own urge to keep exploring the character. Personal redirection. Yes. Which sometimes you need. We all need. We all need because that's that's a matter of discipline, and it's like like because that way you don't go off the rails and you don't go on a tangent, um, and you keep it you you keep your focus, but you don't want to keep your focus too narrow because that will create um, it can really kind of slice your narrative down, so to speak. Yeah. And yes, I'm referring to an OC uh, because when you're playing with original characters. Um, but you can also give um, fan, you know, characters in fandom flaws they don't have in canon to flesh them out. Flaws are qualities. You can change their educational background. You can change their interests. Um, you can give them a hobby. You can change their personal history. Make it work for you. Yeah, do whatever you got to do. Um there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, in a world where Don't Ask, Don't Tell never existed and gay men could serve in the military, maybe John Shepard has an ex-husband instead of an ex-wife. Or repeal it sooner. <laughs> um, and what does that mean? I didn't mean that to be all caps. <laughs> <laughs> no, I didn't. I just, I didn't realize my caps lock was on. I didn't even know why. I don't even know why it was on. Um, <clears throat> do you have anything else? Um, I'm just trying to think if we've covered, um, I feel like there's something else I was going to say about secondary. Um, well, his secondary, his ex-husband could not be Tony because that's his brother. <laughs> <laughs> I just have to plug that. I'm just kidding. You do what you want. You do you. Um, if I was going to write John with an ex-husband, I would probably write an original character for it. Unless you're going to give them a good relationship and then you could write like an entertaining, um, somebody entertaining that comes into the command that says X, um, like Lauren or somebody like, Oh, Hey, well, Hey, <laughs> can we work together? I don't know. Why not? <laughs> I mean, you were a dick of a husband, but you're probably a fine OC, a fine commanding <laughs> officer. Uh, can <laughs> I say that? I mean, are we on the clock right now? <laughs> Rodney, wait, Evan Lauren is your ex-husband. Your XO is your ex-husband. <laughs> doesn't work. It works just fine. We've been doing it for months. It doesn't work for me. <laughs> <laughs> it's not working for me. Where's Tildy? <laughs> Why couldn't you bring the hot lesbian out here? <laughs> oh, Dwayne Pry would have been married to his wife who had his kid during that time period. I mean, the thing is, is like that's a sexy idea, right? But you don't want to add more problems to work out in the background. Especially if it's a throwaway thing. If it's not a throwaway thing, then it go, then go for it, right? If you're going to do something interesting with Dwayne Pride. Um, but if it's just a throwaway, don't, yeah, I agree. Don't don't, don't make problems for yourself. Um, don't do it just to say it. Do it if it matters. So if I was going to pick a fandom character, um, it would probably be someone like Don Epps. Well, now, see, that's really interesting. Hmm. I'm not mad at it. I mean, why would I be mad at it? They wouldn't be good together, so I could see why they'd be divorced. Because they have, um, they're too alike. In, Edgerton. They're too alike in the ways that they shouldn't be, and not enough alike in the ways that they need to be. 
But when it comes to original characters, I mean, I mean secondary characters, not original, secondary characters, um, we talk about things. One of the things that people, somebody's expressed to me today is that they're frustrated about we express that sometimes that things are a balance. And this is what I was meaning to mention. Um, and, and they felt like that's frustrating because it's not an answer, like it's a balance. But the thing is, that really is the answer. It is a, a balance. You want the right, the right number of secondary characters to serve your story, but you don't want so few that your story feels awkward and, you know, barren. Um, it also depends on the environment. Yeah. Because if your characters crash land in the middle of nowhere and the pilot dies and they're in a plane, they were in a plane by themselves. It's just them trying to get back to civilization. I just bunnied myself. Um, for fuck's sake. Uh, she can't even think now. She bunted herself so hard. I did. But so you don't have any other characters. It's just these two assholes in the middle of nowhere. Right? So, but if you're on Atlantis, there are a lot of tertiary characters around you and there are secondary characters built into the canon. Same thing for Harry Potter. The same thing for NCIS, depending on where you put Tony. Is he there? Is he in Hawaii? Is he way the hell out at Pearl? He could be. All the way the hell out at Pearl. All aboard the mothership. So, you know, it just depends, right? Those are baked in secondary characters for you, depending on your canon. And sometimes, um, it was interesting, I was reading, and you don't have to be, I don't need a bunch of people to tell me whether they were fans or not of this show, because it's inevitably what happens. But there was a, um, and I could see it too, because I did I did watch the show, although I don't, wasn't super fond of the last couple seasons, but um, there was an interview about Sex and the City, um, and they talked about how New York was basically a character in the show. Um and I could see it because they did give a lot of time to the city. And sometimes your surroundings become your secondary character. And if that's the case, if, you're, if your characters are stranded on, there are times in some stories where Atlantis is a character. Even if Atlantis isn't sentient, the city itself becomes a character of sorts. Uh, and the same kind of rule would apply if you're in a crashed plane or down spaceship or whatever um same basic rules apply as you would with secondary characters which is you got to give them room to breathe um and you've got to have the right the right amount for your story whatever your story is and i i can't tell you what that number is i can't tell you how many characters your story needs versus somebody else's story i have I would have no way of knowing that. Um, I do know that sometimes I read a story and I go, wow, this is really lacking in, in supplementary characters. It really needs more. But sometimes that's a lot easier to determine from the outside. So I know it can be frustrating when somebody says it's a balancing act or it's, it's, it's a delicate balance or it's a line you have to kind of, you know, you have to walk about how how many characters to put in the story, but uh, unfortunately, it's true. It is just something you learn with time and practice. How many characters you're going to put in your story? There's no math formula to tell you. Okay, you're writing 100k. You need these many characters. This is you know, one plot, and this is and this many subplots. It doesn't work that way. No. Typically, when and it, when it comes to subplots, typically when you're writing a big story, typically it needs um, subplots. But there are occasionally stories that the main plot is so complex 
that that's all you got is the main plot. That's it. And that's not, that's not wrong. It's not right. It's not anything. It's just, it is what it is. Um, so you do what's right for your story. And I know that's a frustrating answer because people would like there to be a formula. And unfortunately, that is where pithy advice comes in. Like, don't use adverbs, show, don't tell, um, write what you know. That's where pithy advice comes in because it's p- trying to give people a formula when formulas just don't exist. Because every story is different. And the needs of your story are going to differ from anybody else's. Also, depending upon your writing style. And so the people, last thing you want to do is be a formula writer. Right. And some people do very well with a very, you know, alluding to characters um, as opposed to having them on screen. And some people's writing style just is not going to lend itself to that. Some people do really well with writing a... a, a um, um, a villain POV. Not everybody can really do well with writing a villain POV. It's it's a matter of what kind of writer are you and what what serves your writing style and your narrative. So uh, I would just say that make sure, you know, you want to have the right number of secondary characters to tell your story and to carry your subplots because usually secondary characters shouldn't be um, like Kira says at the beginning about subplots is that secondary characters subplots aren't focused on secondary characters but secondary characters are usually involved in your subplots because secondary characters are usually involved in almost everything they're moving your plot along for you they're helping connect and weave your subplot into your work and if they don't if they're not part of your gmc and they're not part of your subplots or your plot then they have no business being in the story. Yeah, why are they They don't need dialogue. That's the difference between a tertiary and a secondary character. A secondary character has purpose. A tertiary character is often just background. They serve a function. They serve a function, but they're not serving a purpose. And that's a can be a difficult distinction to make like you need all these characters. Like if you could get away with not giving a character a name, they're probably a tertiary character. If it seems awkward that they're not named, it's it it well there there are times when it's awkward not to not to name a tertiary character, like I don't know, when you're talking to your doctor, you know, when a character's having a lengthy discussion with their doctor, um, and to never give that doctor a name. That doctor's probably a tertiary character, but they might actually wind up needing to be named because otherwise the dialogue could just get weird. But very that's, weird. That's a that's a decision you have to make for yourself in that scene. Um so sometimes you do name tertiary characters, otherwise the scene is awkward. But if they only f- function in one scene in your story or something like that, they're probably a tertiary character. But secondary characters are usually needed to pull your story, for, your, your whole story along. Um, even if they're not in every, you know, obviously they're not in every scene. Nobody's in every scene, usually not even your main character. Unless you're doing a single POV story. And then yes, of course, your main character's in every scene because otherwise you have no scene. Yeah, I mean, it can be the waitress that brings the food or the barista who takes your coffee order or um, the person in the checkout at the grocery store. These characters often don't need. Here's the thing. It also depends on your character. Let's say you have Tony Genozo living in a building with a doorman. You have him walking through the lobby. He's going to know that doorman's name because he's Tony Genozo. Whereas Rodney McKay might not know his name. It depends on the character. 
but you can also you but that's more showing things about your main character as opposed to showing something about your tertiary character so um in that case you, you got to look at that as from the lens of that showing gmc about your main character not showing anything characteristically about your tertiary character and that's an important distinction rodney would get the name wrong on purpose if the person was a dick and the per if the person is not a dick, he might get it wrong by accident and apologize in his way. But it, it is my headcanon that Rodney is only actually ever cruel to people who deserve it. <laughs> but let's say you've, you're 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 out. Um, you got you're writing two characters out on a date, okay? And let's say it's a let's say it's a first date, and um, your main character's out out on a date with with this guy, and um you have this guy he's out on a date with is being rude to their server and your main character is being polite um he's talking to her by name and he's with this guy who's being a douchebag and he calls him out he says why are you talking to brenda that way um Naming Brenda is not because Brenda then becomes a significant character. Naming Brenda is because it becomes a significant um, characterization point between your main character and the guy he's going to dump so he can go bang Eddie. You know. <laughs> I was thinking, Buck is not giving this guy a second date. Of course he's not. <laughs> you rude bastard. <laughs> I could never date somebody who was rude to custom people who are in the food service industry. That's just not on. And if it's Buck, and if, if it's Buck in the first season, he, he might make Brenda feel better with his dick. That's true. <laughs> if Brenda was interested. Don't be sad, Brenda. Do you want to, you guys have a bathroom here. I'm really good at holding people up against a wall. A wall. <laughs> <sighs> In that case, he's not going to go home and bang Eddie because Eddie doesn't exist yet. Well, he, ex <laughs> he exists, but, but you he's know. just not in Buck's world yet. So, but there comes a, so you know it's not a clean cut formula about you name secondary characters, but you don't name tertiary characters because sometimes you name tertiary characters as their as a reflection of your um, characterization of your main or secondary characters. But I think I think that makes sense. I'll comfort you with my big strong arms and big strong dick. Yes, hers. <laughs> I'm going to rename my channel. To what? There we go. I was going to call something like the Nutter Butter Factory. Mm. I mean, but he did get big in fourth season, right? So he does have big strong yes, arms. He does. <laughs> How is crazy better than absurd? I feel like absurd could be insulting. Where crazy is just fun. I'm Southern. <laughs> just roll with it. <laughs> So, yeah. But yeah, it, it does depend on the character. You know, if, if you have a character going to the same bar after work every day and they don't know the bartender's name, they're an asshole. If, if they're sitting at that man's bar every day bitching about their life and they haven't bothered to learn this man's name or this woman's name, asshole. Yeah. So you have to think about how your character is going to be reflecting the choices that you make. Right. Um, but you don't need to get into a big deal about, you know... Um, Al, the bartender, you know, your character walks in and says, Hey, Al, how's it going? And it reflects, a, you, you get a lot in that one sentence. 
And especially if Al says, you know, hey, Buck, how's, how, are you, how are you doing? How, you know, had you know, rough day or something like that. In two lines of dialogue, you've established Buck goes there a lot. He knows Al. Al knows Buck. Al likes Buck enough to actually inquire after his well-being. And Al is putting down a drink already, and Buck doesn't Right, have he order. knows Buck's drink. So you can establish a lot about Buck as a character, that he knows this guy, that... and. You've established who, you know, Al's a bartender, but you don't need to explain, you don't need to say, you don't need to actually go into Buck has been coming into this bar for six years. You don't need to go into, well, he couldn't have been going to that bar. He hasn't lived in LA for six years, but that's beside the point. You don't need to get into any of that detail because you can, you know, just the fact that he knows Al, who Al is by name and Al knows Buck, it sets all the groundwork you need to set. Um, and you don't need to give Al a last name. You don't need to explain how many kids, unless Buck is sitting down and saying, "Hey, how the how how are your kids? You know, did Tommy get into UCLA or whatever?" Well, and that and if you ask that question, it implies that they've had conversations about Al's kids. It also tells you something about Al's age. If he has a kid old enough to be at UCLA, right? And then you find that that's the youngest. So, I mean, you can slip information in. The reader will absorb. Um, and you don't have to spell it out, but you can actually put this stuff. And you don't have to info dump. Right. And it says a lot about Buck and it says a lot about um, their dynamic and how, and it says a lot about how Buck treats people. So that's all could be important information to lay out. Um, but if it's a first time Buck's going into the bar and he's never going to go into that bar again, do you need to tell um, the audience that the bartender's name is Mike? No, probably not. Unless he's going to have a long conversation with the guy. So, um, you know, it's just it's, how to handle secondary characters is one of those things that is kind of a, um, it becomes a skill that you develop the more you write. And you'll go back. And, this is one of the reasons why I think it's good to go back and look at your own work is because you get better. You go back and look at your own work and you go, oh, I could have handled this that way in this story. And it's really important not to critique your own own work, but you can see opportunities and go, you know, I could have handled this this way. In the future, I see this opportunity in the next story I write where I have a bartender. I'll have a better method for handling that. Um, and you can look and see how you've improved while still enjoying what you've written before. I know some people can't have a hard time reading their own work without, like, getting wrapped around the axle and seeing nothing about um, how awful it is. I mean, if, if that's you, then, okay, yeah, don't. I find a great deal of comfort in my own work. I do too. Even I know I like, will hurt my feelings. No. Even sometimes when I go back and I kind of go, oh my God, I cannot believe that I gave that person a point of view. Um, it's like, God damn it, would you look at that fucking typo edit? <laughs> other than other than that, I, I usually enjoy reading my old work. Um, but that's me. I enjoy it. To me. I do enjoy my own work. Which is, I don't know. It just, like I said, it's comforting. I never have to worry about getting smacked in the face with my own work. And sometimes with fibro, it it's almost like reading something new. It's like, hey, I've never read this before. I have? Oh, well, I don't care. It's great. <laughs> oh, I wrote it. Oh, okay. One time I did go looking for something that I had written. I was talking to them about it. And I was like, I was looking for the story. And she's like, she says, isn't that yours? And I was like, is it? Oh, yeah, it might be. Oh, oh well. Don't I feel sheepish? Damn it. And a little, and a little bit silly. Um, but you can find those opportunities. I find that sometimes I look back at some of my older writing and I go, oh, wow, I could have been um, a lot more uh, 
Or sometimes I'm impressed and I go, wow, I handle that kind of thing much better now. <laughs> Look at me. I grew as a person. And I don't care if anybody thinks that that's arrogant or conceited. If you can't look back at your own writing and think you've improved, well, what the hell can you do? <laughs> I mean, it, it is my goal to improve every single time. I don't want to stop learning. No, I don't. I always want to be improving. I want to... Um... I mean, when you... As a writer, when you say, I have nothing left to learn, um, well, number one, that's bullshit. <laughs> and number two, it... It will only lead to stagnation, and then you'll be telling the same damn story over and over and over and over again. And I know you've encountered that writer who does that. We all have. They tell the same story 25 times with different character names. And sometimes it's a different location, but sometimes it's not. And you're like, I, I really hope I never get to that point where I don't have new ideas. And you ask yourself, how did they get there? Well, they got there by assuming they had nothing left to learn. And they also stopped reading. Yeah. Yeah. And learn and the thing is you can learn learn from other writers, you know, you and I don't mean like rip off their stuff. I mean, you look at where an author handles um something and you go, "Wow, that was really kind of elegant how they handled that problem in their in their narrative or they handled this subplot, you know, how they tied these subplots together." really deftly and you can you can learn from that and you can kind of go okay I'm, I'm making mental note because those are not ideas those are techniques right and it does boil down to technique and execution because there are like what seven ideas <laughs> well that's what they say some people argue and they come back with like what do they say 13 somebody else said oh those are like 30 and it's like oh, no whatever. dog whatever, <laughs> there, there are like seven maybe nine I'm going to go with seven. Um, and, but, it, but it really boils down to your execution and your characterization. Char uh, I think characterization can make or break a story. Uh, yeah, I agree. Because while I am a plotter, I'm definitely a character-driven writer. At least in my own opinion. I think you are. And if you're not a character-driven writer, if you're a plot-driven writer, that's fine. Um, but that's where it becomes it's really important that your plot be tight but even a plot driven writer has to stay consistent in their characterization there's just not any wiggle room about that in fact i think a plot driven writer has to spend more time keeping their characterization on point because if their plot is driving their character they don't have a lot of room to make mistakes with their characterization yeah i agree which is you know that's a, that's, that's an a immense skill to stay to stay that tight and to be able to deftly introduce secondary characters and not get wrapped around the axle. And it's, it takes work. It takes skill. But there's nothing wrong with being one or the other. No. It's like there's nothing wrong with being a pantser or being a plotter or being a plotser or being a, you know, whatever. Ever how you get there, your journey is valid. When you say plot driven, you mean they want to write a specific instance and work around it. Um... Plot driven means that they are, as opposed to the character driving the story, the plot drives the story, which I know sounds a little like you think the plot, if the plot is the story, shouldn't the plot always drive the story? Um, but I'm trying to think of instances. Um, most so, mystery, most, a lot of, a lot, of especially um, classic mysteries, not cozy mysteries, especially classic mysteries are plot driven. Um, for me, I make the difference between them in that in a character driven work, your character's internal motivations drive the plot 
Whereas in a plot-driven work, external conflict kind of drags your character along, pushes them and prods them through the plot. That might sound a little reactive, but that's not what I mean. I mean that... Well, in an example um, that was given by... Um... I just looked, they said that the Da Vinci Code is an example of a plot driven story. It's because it's all external events are driving everything that happened. Right. Yeah. I mean, nothing that uh, Robert Langdon did had anything to do with what happened. They, in that case, Indiana Jones and the, the Lost Ark. Yeah. But there comes a point at which, even if you're a r- plot driven writer, that depending upon how you present the plot driven work, it could look so character driven that it's a little bit hard to tell the difference. Um, but I would definitely say most of the classic mysteries are, are definitely plot driven because, um, so, it is all yeah. about external events. So you have to ask yourself, is your plot impacting your character or is your character impacting your plot in Indiana Jones and the lost Ark? Absolutely. Nothing Indiana Jones does impacts the ending. Oh, Raiders of the lost Ark. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but was I saying it wrong? Because in the end, they um, they open the ark and all the Nazis die. Indiana, um, um, Indiana had nothing to do with that. It would have happened whether he was there or not. It was a foregone conclusion. Conversely, if you look at the um, the work of uh, if you if, if you look at Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade to kind of further that point, um, Indiana's actions have direct influence uh, throughout the work, including when he saves his father's life by retrieving the actual Holy Grail. And in that instance, he was the only one there that could have retrieved the Holy Grail. He had his father's notes. He understood his father's um, methods. He understood what the Holy Grail would be versus what people would suspect it would be. But his in mother- the end, he was able to let the Holy Grail go. Right, but he was... Um, so are you saying that one was plot or character-driven? It's more character driven. Yeah, it is. Okay, okay, okay. I was like, wow, we're we're. we're so, because the Raiders of the Lost Ark is plot driven, whereas the Last Crusade is character driven. Yeah, I would definitely because I thought I thought you were saying the opposite, and I was like, wow, we're really on a different wavelength on that story. No, no, but no. You're, abs- you're, you're absolutely like, from the very beginning. Everything he does is driving that plot because he's the one that finds the knight in the in the library. Um, right. And he if it if it wasn't for his father, if it wasn't for his own motivations around his father, he wouldn't have been involved at all. So, and they would never would have found the grail at all. So um, Ellie gave a put, put an example in the chat and asked if it was character driven, which is my story. I'll forgive. Um, yes, that is entirely character driven, um, which is Ethan finds out that Tony's been dumped at the altar and he goes to say something. Um, his own internal angst uh, about their breakup and his desire to see him again is what drives him to go. So that, um, is, is definitely very character driven. I don't, I, I'm trying to think if I've written anything plot driven. It's unusual for me to write anything plot driven. I'll, I'll put that out there. It's not my comfort zone because I, I prefer that my characters impact the world versus the world impacting my characters. I mean, sometimes things happen to your characters and you're the world, but it's a matter of, now, the shitty things in the world creating your character's internal motivation and therefore your character does something, that's still character-driven. But if your character has no choice about what's going on, that's they're just like, you know, it, it's, it can be kind of a um, fine line. So um, 
a soldier getting deployed? Um, not necessarily, because that becomes, you've got an external event that leads to potentially internal conflict. And so it depends upon what kind of story you're telling. No. Um, it's more like um, if you're telling a story about their internal angst about being deployed, whether they signed up for it voluntarily or not, when you're when you're basing your story about their own internal conflict, if that's what's driving your story, that's character driven. If it's about you've got a bunch of soldiers and a war happens and it's about the war, that's more plot driven. It's a matter of where the source of, I, I would say it's a matter of where the GMC is coming from. Is it internal or is it external? The primary GMC in your story, is it coming from your character or is it coming from the outside events? The primary. Both exist in your story anyway. But what's driving the story forward? Is it what's going on inside your character or is it what's going on in the world? Does that make sense? It makes sense to me. And you will find as you write the, that you're one or the other. And it's a natural state for you as a writer. So you don't have to force it or dig it out. It's already there. It'll be your comfort zone. And you can write the opposite. But speaking from experience, it won't be comfortable. Let's use an example that's a little bit hard to pin down. But I think I'm pretty sure I know which way I swing on this. Whether it's the movie or the book. Okay. I think The Martian is plot driven. Agreed. And that's difficult to say because it's basically one dude for most of the story. And he's by himself, and it's a lot about what he does. But I do feel like it is the plot that pulls him along, not him that pulls the plot along. I mean, it's about his his physical survival. Yeah. Um, he has an emotional journey. For sure. Um, I mean, a wretched one. Uh, I, would, I mean, lesser, you just, that, it, that's the trip to insanity really um but also but his circumstances are so far beyond his control and he is basically one single misstep every single day from death and each one of these uh, uh castaway castaway yeah yeah i know tom hey um i i almost want to say it's the opposite which is weird because it's almost the same basic thing except no, I still go plot driven, I guess. But these are examples of where it kind of skirts the line. It's because when when the when you've got a character by themselves and the external forces are so extreme that your character's internal motivation for even surviving it becomes its own force in the story, it's as close as you can get to almost walk in the line between the two. Because they both matter almost as much. Because if you don't have those great external forces, you don't have a story, right? The, the story is this extreme external force and the character who survived it. But if the character's internal motivation doesn't rise to the challenge of this external force, again, there's no story. So I think these are rare occasions where it comes close to the line. I think the Martian is on the line, but is more plot driven than it's character driven. Whereas the castaway is the same, but I think it's a little more character driven than plot driven. Um, because there's this moment in castaway and there's this moment also in the Martian where they are both throwing themselves out of their circumstances in castaway. He does it with a raft and in the midst of that explosion from that Island, 
and getting away and getting out into the shipping lane so he can be rescued um, when no one is looking for him. He is forced to sacrifice the only piece of comfort he's had since he was cast away. Whereas in The Martian, he throws himself off that planet, but he knows there's somebody there to catch him. Yeah, I see. I see what you mean. So there is like this for both of them. It's a leap of faith. But for Watney, it's not blind. He has faith that his crew's up there and they're going to they're going to catch him. But when it comes to Tom Hanks' character, whose name I forgot, um, he does the same. Th- he does the same thing, and in doing so, he sacrifices Wilson, who is his only emotional comfort. He throws himself out into the ocean and hopes for rescue. It is a leap of faith, a personal one. It's it's desperation, but also it's hopeful. And he does get rescued, but I, I feel like his is a character's journey, whereas Watney's is different. Yeah. They are both, I agree, they're both right on that line, but they're slightly different sides of that line. Um mm-hmm. But I think you can only really achieve that. I only I can only think of examples that are on that line where it is it is that you know man versus nature or man versus circumstances thing, yeah. where it's that extreme where your character has to rise, where you need that ex- to show that extreme internal grit, where you have to show that internal motivation to rise to this extreme external conflict, and that's unusual. Usually. The external con usually when it's something's plot driven that is very pulling your character along, it's like a murder, or you know, um, like to, um, Knives Out. Um, did you see Knives Out? I think this was. I've not. Okay, that movie's definitely p- plot driven. Um, everybody's pulled along by the events in that story. It's a mystery, um, right? Yeah, it's pulled along by the plot by the by the. It is definitely kind of like a classic mystery. Everybody's pulled along by the by the plot and um and by Daniel Craig's weird accent. So And Chris Evans sweater. And Chris Evans pretty sweater, yes. <laughs> um so but what kind of writer you are, um, because it's not just about whether there's a there's big old external events, it's about what how how you focus the story. Is your focus about the big old external event and how it's pulling people along, or is your focus about what this did to your character and how they how they responded to it? Um so I don't think we, we talk about as an like um um you would think like a zombie apocalypse could be plot driven kind of story, could be. But like all in Claire Watson's story that we've talked about a few times, but where we got our tree Claudius trope from that we're, we're making a trope. Um, I would say that's character driven because it's about what the impact that was on two people, three people, and, and then two and their journey <laughs> and their journey to survive the zombie apocalypse. Right. So it, it was about their, what that, the conflict that did how brought them together, the relationships they built um, and then what that drove them to. Um, so I would say that that was a character driven story uh, but it could have been a zombie apocalypse is definitely a setup potentially for a plot driven story because it's a major external event, but it all depends on the kind of writer you are as to what you're going to do with a big external event like that, like a natural disaster, a zombie apocalypse, a, a plague. <sighs> These could be um, big external factors, but a character driven writer is going to approach those kinds of situations differently than a plot driven writer would. 
And there's no right or wrong. Let's go back to the Martian and the castaway because their circumstances after they're rescued are also really interesting. Mark returns to Earth, returns to NASA. Now he has to wear glasses, probably because of nutritional issues. Um, Teaches the next generation. He's settled. He's he he knows his place in the in the universe at large. Really, his experience on Mars changed him, but he knows he knows exactly where he belongs. Whereas in Castaway, Tom Hanks' character is still kind of lost. He threw himself at the universe, and someone caught him. But when he got back on dry, but when he got home, nothing was the same, and there was no place for him. And his woman had married another man and had kids. So his journey isn't over. His circumstances changed, but he's unfinished. And his story probably becomes more character driven the further you go. Like if you were to keep writing his story and what comes next, it probably continues to be more and more. But if you've not read The Martian, be forewarned that the movie has a better ending. I mean, he does survive. I'm not saying he he dies in the book. All I'm saying is, is that the moment he stops being a Martian, the book ends. Yeah, they gave us they gave us a little um, a little denouement in 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 the movie, which is great, which is great. Um, also, fan fiction gave us the potato fic. So, if you have, you should you should watch the movie, read the potato fic. Read the potato fic. It's fantastic. I have never been so emotional about potatoes until I read the potato fic. Although I was weirdly invested in his potatoes during the movie. And that's why I thought the fic was such a thing is because I was so invested in those potatoes and I didn't realize I needed fanfic for somebody to express how I felt about the potatoes. I didn't know that I needed that, but I did. There's a fic in the Martian fandom where when Mark Watney is on his way home from Mars, NASA, um, I will get. I got, actually, is forced. This, I will, I will is, okay, is forced to release his his video logs because they're public property. Freedom of Information so, Act. The Freedom press have been asking. The press have been asking for it. So they start to release them one by one, and people all over the planet watch them. The Watney logs. And so all those things you see in the movie of like him talking and walking around naked, um, you know, him talking to himself, it's all released, right? Um, Because he took it with him instead of leaving it on Mars. I left it on Mars. Um, And so people get really invested in him again. Then they start to worry about him on the ship on the way home. Does Mark have other stuff besides potatoes to eat now? Is Mark gaining weight? Because Mark lost a lot of weight. Does Mark have something to listen to besides disco? Can we send him some music? (laughs) People get stupidly invested in Mark's logs, and it becomes like this worldwide phenomenon. And there's all these Twitter threads in it, and it feels like this is the way the world would react. So as his logs get released, it's like all these reactions on Twitter or Instagram or whatever, people reacting to his logs and they're just and they and they get re- they're getting really bent they're getting really bent um eventually mark has to start making new ones because they run out of content and people lose their shit yeah they're like he has to start making new logs new video logs on the ship 
because people are the world is just not dealing well with not having new content. So it's it's great. You watch the movie and then you realize that this fanfic is the voice of the person who's just finished this movie and is not emotionally done with it yet. Yeah, I mean, because it's like, is Mark okay? <laughs> is somebody hugging Mark today? Because I think Mark I, needs a hug. I don't think I don't think it's really the Truman Show thing. Have you have you seen um have you seen the uh the the Martian? Okay. So, you know, I mean, Mark was kind of like preserving everything he did for posterity thing, but he got a little, mm. and, um, but he also thought he was going to die on Mars. He did. He did think he was going to die. So they start releasing all of those videos. So basically the people you know on earth get to see what we got to see. And in the movie, they basically watch the movie over weeks and months as they quote unquote pixelate his dick because that comes up. Um, and then, they have start having. They start reacting. They're like, "Well, holy crap! How am I?" And then they have a really big reaction to the potatoes when he loses his potatoes. So um, I didn't feel like it was quite the same thing as the as the Truman Show, which the Truman Show is a weird sort of unfortunate voyeurism. Um, I cried reading the book about the potatoes. I cried reading the book. I was like, "Oh my god, his potatoes are gone. He's going to starve to death." Those <laughs> potatoes. What's he going to do now? So um, I just, it's a really, it's, it was an, a really, it was like that fanfic was like the thing I needed for like some emotional closure, I guess, about that movie, which the movie has more emotional closure than the book, but. True, true. But the fic, I think the fic kind of expands on the world's investment in Mark because the whole world is invested in Mark and his survival um, by the time they get him off Mars. You know, they're all waiting to see if if mark is going to successfully throw himself off his planet and get caught by his crew and so and then then they have nothing and then nasa starts releasing the logs and then then they have something and then they realize while they were worrying about mark watney mark watney was practically almost dead every day and that his struggle to survive was much worse than they ever could have imagined it's a great fic it is. It's called, um, for those, if, I don't know, if we, did we give the title of it? We did not. Um, it's called, You Know You Have a Piece, you, you Know You Have a Permanent Piece of My Medium-Sized American Heart. That's what the story is called. And it is by um, T-R-I-C-A-T-U-L-A-R. Tricatular. Tricatular? Tricatular, I guess. Tricatular. But it's great. I highly recommend it. In fact, it's probably my favorite um, fic in um, Martian. The Martian. Yeah, it's it's under ten k, and it's it's. I don't have a lot of gen fics that are my favorite fics in a fandom, but this is definitely that case. But be careful when you read in the fandom because there's also a really, really devastating fic where they never realize that Mark is on Mars until they send out the next mission, and then NASA eventually brings. Um, his video recordings to the crew who left him behind. Oh no, no, no! Yeah, I don't need that kind of negativity. In my I don't life. know why. I don't know why I watched that shit. I don't know why I read that shit. I don't, I don't know why you did either. <laughs> it tore my heart out. Sometimes, apparently, I like to cry. <laughs> we'll just go watch the rest of nine one one, right? <sighs> anyway, um, I look at Margaret. <laughs> Wow, Margaret. But eat like the last video log that they listen to um or they watch is Mark telling them um 
that it wasn't their fault and that to please don't blame themselves. I shouldn't gif. I broke the gif rule, but I don't even care. And it's just, anyways. So there was our tangent on plot driven versus character driven. And now we're all sad. So on that note, I hope you guys learned something and um, that you um, continue to grow as a writer in your craft. I'm out of tea again. So say good night, Julie. Good night, everyone. Why do I? Is that a tattoo or panties? That's a tattoo. You didn't end the recording. I know. I got distracted by an ass. (sighs) Did you say good night? I did. For fuck's sake. Good night, everybody. (laughs) 